little as possible. What's that? What's that? You want to do your partner a big favor? Take him home. Take him home! Just get him the hell out of here! Go home, Jake. It's Chinatown. Scott, if your life had a face, I would punch it. Yeah. Wait, what? Let me ask you something. Why would you make the point of saying someone's not a genius? Do you think I'm especially not a genius? Veronica, why are you pulling my dick? and welcome to another installment of The Greatest Moments in the History of Forever. I'm Zach. I'm Matt. And this is episode number 330, Chinatown. Another one of these ones where the making of stories are as interesting as the actual movie. Yeah, this is one of the definitive Hollywood productions. Maybe the last one. Oh, yeah. (laughs) The (laughs) end of an era, if you will. 1974... Chinatown. We're back after a little bit of a breather. Mm -hmm. Like a lot of our breaks over the past seven and a half years, not really planned. Yeah. (laughs) Sometimes you just crash and burn and need a break. It's really a combination of both of our faults. Mm -hmm. Faults might be a bit harsh, but... It's just life schedule for me. I think for you, you put so much work into this that you get burned out. Yeah, it's sort of like I have to do a certain amount of work to get it done by a little tiny window that Matt has available. <laughs> and if it's not going to happen, then we might have to wait a few days, which is where we were at. It's fine, though, because 2023 has by far been our busiest, most productive year as a show. So I think you could stand to not hear our voices for a few extra days. I think people are okay with that, yeah. But long story short, we're going to still try to cram in everything we were originally planning on, including the listener requests that are delineated by month, but we'll see. We'll see how that goes. If we need to adjust, then we will, but whatever. All right, Chinatown, 1974, directed by Roman Polanski, written by Robert Town, although... Polanski did some uncredited rewrites, including coming up with the end of the film, which differed slightly from Town's version. Yeah, some uncredited rewrites. Some of the stuff I was listening to was that he was like really pulling it all apart and putting it back together, much to the dismay of Town. Now, I don't know how solid the sources are that I was listening to, but... Well, he definitely was... Taking a lot of stuff out, yeah, including narration, which I think would have potentially ruined it. Mm-hmm. But for the most part, I think Town assembled the story. It was just more of Polanski picking and choosing yeah, yeah. what to use and where, and then completely 
changing the ending to more reflect his mindset. I think it was initially a, a pretty long script. The screenplay is now regarded as being one of the most perfect screenplays ever written and is now a main teaching point in screenwriting seminars and classes everywhere. It was written with Jack Nicholson in mind. And then in the 2022 nonfiction book, The Big Goodbye, Chinatown and the Last Years of Hollywood, author Sam Wasson discloses that for more than 40 years... Revered screenwriter Robert Towns secretly employed Edward Taylor, an old college friend, as his uncredited writing partner because Town realized he himself was an excruciatingly slow writer and Taylor, quote, would help, especially as he labored under intense pressure to complete Chinatown. So before we jump in and before we do our housekeeping and we really ramp it up, I guess I really wanted to adjust the way we enter into these episodes Hmm. just for this one in particular because it is worth us at least pointing out that there will be a little bit of a what i'm describing as a polanski advisory for this i think we all know what the deal is with roman polanski i don't know that someone would stumble upon this podcast without knowing anything about it i don't know that we're really the right venue to go through his various crimes and bad behavior and the Mm. fallout and the last 45 years and everything else that's happened. But this was his last American film, and it was also his first time back in L.A., essentially, after the murder of his wife, Sharon Tate, in 1969. In 1977, he was accused of raping an underage girl. He pled guilty. There was a rejected plea deal. He fled the country. The rest, as we say, is history. We know what's Mm -hmm. going on. Other women have come forward. As is always the case now with dealing with problematic people in the movies that we cover on the show, we understand that some people may have a problem with listening to it or whatever. We're fine with anyone who wants to back out and not be a part of it. We're not really going to get into anything to do with his crimes or his personal life. And honestly, I don't even really have a lot about Polanski just because it felt kind of weird to really harp on it. Mm -hmm. I think that Chinatown is an incredible film. I think Polanski made several incredible films. He also made some that are terrible. Totally. He made one that was terrible right before this called What? (laughs) Which I have on Blu-ray. I bought it as a blind buy and it's completely insane. I've never seen that one. It doesn't even really feel like anything close to a quality movie. So his work was all over the place, even in this era. Oh, yeah. Chinatown's incredible. Jack Nicholson's my favorite actor. We had to do this on the show. Totally. And he is, to look at just his work, I mean, he's definitely an interesting dude to follow. But that's putting aside all the other stuff. We're just not going down that road. Yeah. Obviously, we feel that whatever consequences he should face he should actually face and not be able to run around free in Europe or anything like that and it's an unfortunate situation we have now and I think a lot of people probably regret supporting him 20 years ago Mm -hmm. when the whole thing was going on with the piano and or was it the pianist I can't remember which is his movie and which is the Jane Campion I think his uh, is the, the pianist. pianist. Yeah. yeah. Piano is Jane Campion. It's a dark time 
people's thoughts on these subjects were a lot different 20 years ago. A lot of people signed this petition. A lot of people we know and love and like. Yeah. I but, mean, information was less readily available, too, so I feel like stories would get skewed. Yeah, I mean, some people probably don't even understand why there was any support for him, and that yeah. was something I had to even research at all because I was kind of confused as to what the, even the, the scenario was and everything else. Whatever. We're acknowledging it, but this is not that type of podcast. We're going to talk about the film Chinatown. So we just wanted to get that out of the way first. Before we fully dive in, though, let's remind everyone to follow the show on Twitter, at Pod. Maybe eventually we'll be on threads, too. Wow. That would know. be the day. Yeah, because we tweet so much that I know <laughs> we need to get on more social media. <laughs> Please make sure you're subscribed to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, etc. And please give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. If you would like to, please send us an email, greatestpod at gmail.com. We will read your email on the show. We have an email to read at the end of this episode, greatestpod at gmail.com. If you'd like a free sticker, you can let us know via email or on Twitter, and we'll send that to you for free. And also... Listener requests, that's where you would reach us for that. We're going to hold off on going through the whole rigmarole for the listener requests. But if you have any questions, you can reach out via email or Twitter, and we'll get to it. We still have a few slots left for 2023, and we have some more coming up this month, so we'll go through the whole listener request ordeal then. And find us on Letterboxd, Zach1983, and Matt Crosby. Chinatown was released in 1974. It had a budget of $6 million, box office $29.2 million, which was still pretty solid for 1974. Not a lot of movies were making tons and tons of money yet. We're right on the yeah. precipice of the big blockbuster explosion with Jaws and Star Wars and all that stuff. Still a good uh, profit margin. For sure. And now, of course, Chinatown is considered one of the great American films. If you have not already seen it or would like to rewatch it for the purposes of listening to this podcast, you can find it streaming for free on Paramount Plus, which would probably be the easiest and yep. safest bet. That's where I watched it. But you can also find it on Canopy, which I think requires a library card. Otherwise, it's free. Sling on demand if you have that. MGM Plus, which I was not really aware it was a thing. Same. Epics, and then also various streaming rental options as well. So plenty of places to watch it. I watched a 4K transfer on Vudu that I bought, but I also do have it on Blu-ray. They haven't released okay. a 4K physical disc yet. Hmm. Don't know why. Yeah. Perhaps if it was Warner Brothers, because they're doing that big 100 years thing this year. Oh, with true. All those movies. Chinatown was nominated for 11 Academy Awards, winning just one Best Original Screenplay for Robert Town. Hmm. The film was also nominated for Best Picture, Best Cinematography, Best Art Decoration, Set Decoration, Best Costume Design, Best Sound, Best Film Editing, and Best Original Score. It did not win Best Picture. Polanski was nominated for his direction, and Jack Nicholson and Faye Dunaway both earned nominations for their performances as well. This was the year of The Godfather Part 2. Oh, yeah. With that film winning Best Picture and Coppola taking home the victory for Best Director in a category that included Dustin Hoffman, Nicholson, Al Pacino, and Albert Finney. 
Art Carney won Best Actor for huh. Harry and Tonto. Wow. Ellen Burstyn won Best Actress for Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore. Nice. The 47th Academy Awards was also the year of the conversation. So Coppola had two films in the Best Picture race. Lenny, A Woman Under the Influence, The Towering Inferno, Blazing Saddles, Young Frankenstein, and Day for Night. Big year for Mel Brooks. Totally. In addition to Coppola. So this is a, a weird callback to a time in our lives, but I had thought this was a Best Picture winner just because I remember when we would go to the AMC restaurant that still existed at a time where they would still <laughs> serve food. Yes. And in that restaurant, they had, I thought, every year's Best Picture winner. And for some reason, I thought that I remembered there being a picture of this in that whole little collage. I couldn't tell collage. You. I couldn't remember. It must not be because I'm pretty sure it was just the Best Picture winner, so it must not have been there, but I had a memory of that. Yeah. Hmm. <laughs> maybe it was a picture of Jack Nicholson from a different movie. Yeah, maybe. According to Robert Town, both Carrie McWilliams' Southern California Country, an island on the land from 1946, and a West Magazine article called Raymond Chandler's L.A. inspired his original screenplay, in a letter to McWilliams, Town wrote that Southern California country, quote, really changed my life. It taught me to look at the place where I was born and convinced me to write about it. Town wrote the screenplay with Jack Nicholson in mind. He took the title and the exchange, What Did You Do in Chinatown, as little as possible, from a Hungarian vice cop who had worked in Los Angeles's Chinatown, confusion of dialects and gangs. The vice cop thought that Quote, police were better off in Chinatown doing nothing because you could never tell what went on there, unquote. And whether what you did helped or furthered the exploitation of victims. The character of Hollis Mulray was inspired by and loosely based on Irish immigrant William Mulholland, according to Mulholland's granddaughter. Mulholland was the superintendent and chief engineer of the Los Angeles Department of Water and Power, who oversaw the construction of the 230-mile aqueduct that carries water from the Owens Valley to Los Angeles. Author Vincent Brooke considers real-life Mulholland to be split in the film into noble water and power chief Hollis Mulray and mobster muscle Claude Mulvahill, just as land syndicate and combination members who, quote, exploited their insider knowledge on account of personal greed are condensed into the singular and singularly monstrous Noah Cross. Mm. Now, for first-time viewers, I think one of the surprises of the movie is how much water plays a factor. <laughs> a lot of talk about water and droughts and water runoff and irrigation. Yeah, well, I'm sure that a movie we'll mention a couple of times is mm. Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Yep. And we'll get into the whole thing about the theoretical trilogy mm -hmm. of these movies and how Roger Rabbit sort of became part of that in a weird way, even yeah. though it predates the second film in this series but yeah it's essentially you take real history something that happened and you change it mm -hmm. and you mold it which is something we're very used to when it's obvious like tarantino right killing hitler and in inglorious bastards but it's something that a lot of screenwriters have done for a long time except they do it in a very subtle way, so it's not jarring, and people don't think of it as alternative history. But that's essentially what Chinatown is, because in the film, they actually make Mulray pretty sympathetic in a way that the guy that he's based on, Mulholland, is not. And Mulholland was actually sort of to blame for 
the real life damn disaster that Mulray is trying to specifically avoid in this film mm-hmm. instead of walk right into, which is, I guess, what they're implying that Mulholland actually did. Okay. Now, the dates don't always sync up. I don't think Mulholland was necessarily in the same exact position in 1937. This is all sort of a tenuous big vague time period which we'll get into the california water wars a little bit more but yeah you take like a very real thing Mm -hmm. because they sort of say it in the movie they built a city on a desert the city expands way beyond what anyone thought well how the fuck do you provide water to a city in the desert you have to come up with all these ways to do it and so then they're diverting water from other places and opens up the door for corruption it's like how can we turn this into a way to make money yep oh, we can like fuck over these people in the valley, get them to sell their property for dirt cheap, and then when Los Angeles incorporates that into the city, we'll be able to sell it for 10 times what we paid for it. You know, it's, it's who even comes racket. up with these yeah, plans? I, I don't even know. <laughs> Everything's a racket. In the film, Mulray opposes the dam wanted by Noah Cross in the city of Los Angeles for reasons of engineering and safety, arguing he would not repeat his previous mistake when... His dam broke, resulting in hundreds of deaths. This alludes to the St. Francis Dam disaster of March 12, 1928, when the dam had been inspected by Mulholland on the day of its catastrophic failure. The dam's failure inundated the Santa Clara River Valley, including the town of Santa Paula, with flood water causing the deaths of at least 431 people. The event effectively ended Mulholland's career. Polanski first learned of the script through Nicholson as they had been searching for a suitable joint project, and the producer Robert Evans was excited at the thought of Polanski's direction creating a darker, more cynical, and European vision of Mm. the United States. Polanski was initially reluctant to return to Los Angeles as it was only a few years since the murder of his pregnant wife, Sharon Tate, but was persuaded on the strength of the script. Yeah, you do feel like that whole backstory does add to the darkness and cynicism of the movie oh for sure i think that was the leading reason why polanski rewrote the ending mm-hmm. and wanted it to be such a downer and i was thinking about this last night and i don't know if i'll be able to land this plane because it's kind of a weird okay. way of thinking about things but i was thinking that it's sort of a weird irony that the event that people think of as the thing that ended the the peace and love of the mm-hmm. 60s the manson murders was the direct influence on the ending of this which is such a bummer downer ending right which in a way on its own is indicative of what we think of as the prototypical 70s ending yeah yeah because the 70s do feel like such a downer and a lot of people attribute that more to vietnam which is obviously a huge factor when it comes to a lot of things But without really thinking of the Sharon Tate aspect of it, when you get to the ending of this movie, my first thought is, yeah, this is the definitive 70s ending. Mm -hmm. And you don't realize that, oh, the thing that ended the 60s is what led directly to this, which is what led to a decade's worth of thinking of the 70s as such a downer. So it's like, yeah, Yeah. that all fits perfectly. The thing that ended the the joy and peace and love is what led to this and that... It's like, yeah, of course, that's the ending of Chinatown. It makes perfect sense now. Well, in a post Once Upon a Time in Hollywood world, I'm constantly thinking about this stuff now. <laughs> like when I watch these movies from the 70s, it's like, oh, yeah, what if Quentin Tarantino's version of events happens? Sharon Tate isn't killed. 
what impact on Roman Polanski's filmmaking career? Maybe she's in this movie. Ch- Chinatown, yeah, it ends with original Robert Towns ending. <laughs> Chinatown's not a classic. Right. Maybe he doesn't even direct it. Yeah. Who knows? I'm just constantly thinking about that stuff now. Such an impactful movie on my life. As I was saying to you, I bought that book, the Sam Wasson book. Yeah, it looks cool. I have it sitting right here. I bought it last week. I planned to read it in preparation for this episode, and of course, I did not. Mm -hmm. But I did pull one quote from it because I did read a little bit. and When I came to this, I thought, okay, this is perfect. This is a good way to launch into something. Robert Town once said that Chinatown is a state of mind, not just a place on the map of Los Angeles, but a condition of total awareness almost indistinguishable from blindness. Dreaming you're in paradise and waking up in the dark. That's Chinatown. Thinking you've got it figured out and realizing you're dead. That's Chinatown. I've heard good things. We'll talk about this a little bit at the end. I think think Ben Affleck might be taking taking this and making it a movie oh, cool. although I wouldn't be shocked if that didn't happen just because yeah. they already did that for the offer which is the Godfather thing which Robert right. Evans is also a character in so I don't know if they'll do another one but it's on the table and I know that there's all kinds of Chinatown adjacent projects that may or may not happen someday we'll we'll maybe touch on those a little bit at the end in his 2004 film essay and documentary, Los Angeles Plays Itself, film scholar Tom Anderson lays out the complex relationship between Chinatown's script and its historical background. Chinatown isn't a docudrama, it's a fiction. The water project it depicts isn't the construction of the Los Angeles aqueduct engineered by William Mulholland before the First World War. Chinatown is set in 1937, not 1905. The Mulholland-like figure Hollis Mulray isn't the chief architect of the project, but rather its strongest opponent, who must be discredited and then murdered. Mulray is against the Alto Valajeo Dam because it's unsafe, not because it's stealing water from somebody else, but there are echoes of Mulholland's aqueduct project in Chinatown. Mulholland's project enriched its promoters through insider land deals in the San Fernando Valley, just like the dam project in Chinatown. The disgruntled San Fernando Valley farmers of Chinatown forced to sell off their land at bargain prices because of an artificial drought seemed like stand-ins for the Owens Valley settlers whose homesteads turned to dust when Los Angeles took the water that irrigated them. The Vanderlip Dam disaster, which Hollis Mulray cites to explain his opposition to the proposed dam, is an obvious reference to the collapse of the St. Francis Dam in 1928. Mulholland built this dam after completing the aqueduct and its failure was the greatest man-made disaster in the history of California. These echoes have led many viewers to regard Chinatown not only as docudrama, but as truth, the real secret history of how Los Angeles got its water, and it has become a ruling metaphor of the non-fictional critiques of, of Los Angeles development. I don't think that necessarily would come as a shock to anybody that <laughs> the details in this movie aren't exactly how things went. Totally. But even still, I think that projects like chinatown can inspire a lot of interest yeah and it's definitely eye-opening because it's something that you just wouldn't think about yeah the same thing in roger rabbit yeah yeah how is california constructed so you're thinking okay how do we get water how do we get how do we travel okay so they built these freeways they built these dams and aqueducts and reservoirs and all these different things to divert water from other places Mm -hmm. progress can often lead to assorted 
history with Definitely. a lot of skeletons in the closet. And yeah. You don't really know how all these things came to be. Heaven's Gate. <laughs> exactly. But I do think, like I said, that even though it's not necessarily accurate, that it can inspire some interest and it will maybe make people look into things and wonder about things and become fascinated by the real life stories of these people who basically decided our fate. They crafted the world we live in and we don't really understand it because we take it all for granted. Mm -hmm. The water that comes out of our sinks, the roads we drive on, the buildings we go to, the cities we live in, it's all thought out and somebody planned these things and did these things and believe it or not people got murdered people got lied to people got stolen from <laughs> progress Oy. and construction and development people get bowled over and of course there's still versions of it going on today yeah it'll never end yep in 1971 producer robert evans offered town 175 thousand dollars to write a screenplay for the great gatsby but town felt he could not do better than F. Scott Fitzgerald. So instead, Town asked Evans for $25,000 to write his own story, Chinatown, to which Evans agreed. Chinatown is set in 1937 and portrays the manipulation of a critical municipal resource, water, by a cadre of shadowy oligarchs. It was the first part of Town's planned trilogy about the character of J.J. Giddis, the foibles of the Los Angeles power structure and the subjugation of public good by private greed. The second part, The Two Jakes, has Giddis caught up in another grab for a natural resource, Oil, yep. in the 1940s. It was directed by Jack Nicholson and released in 1990. But the second film's commercial and critical failure scuttled plans to make Giddis versus Giddis about the third finite resource, Land, in Los Angeles circa 1968. And it's interesting to think about this movie from the perspective of the Hayes Code. This is still within that immediate grace period after America finally took the shackles off and decided to expand their film culture yeah. to try to match what was going on in Europe. You have new American cinema. And so now... Even something so simple as portraying the government and the police as corrupt was not allowed wow. as recently as like six or seven years before this. So you can kind of trace a straight line between movies like this and the paranoid 70s thrillers and oh, 70s yeah. movies right back to that and just finally being like, okay, well, we weren't allowed to say this before, right. but... The world is actually really fucked we up. Gotta you expose, can't trust anyone. Yeah, we gotta expose the CD underbelly that really exists here, people. <laughs> yeah, just your average film goer in the sixties and seventies is blown away. We thought it was all leave yeah, it to be. Wait a minute. Yeah. You're trying to tell me that the world is really this <laughs> fucked up? I thought everything was great. Yeah. <laughs> we'll circle back to the two Jakes a little bit later at the end. The supposed third part of the trilogy never actually existed, as later confirmed by Town himself. However, certain elements and details of the story, a corrupt company called Cloverleaf tries to buy up all public transportation in order to replace it with freeways, would later end up in Who Framed Roger Rabbit from 1988, which was a film noir spoof homage of Chinatown. The interesting thing about the trilogy concept is that they focused on the three things that were instrumental in making Los Angeles what it would grow into, which is via the control of water, real estate, and transportation. 
when I was writing out some notes for myself and thinking about those three elements, water, real estate, transportation. So I'm writing that down as the three elements of Robert Towns' potential trilogy. And as I'm writing that down, I wrote water, real estate, and corruption <laughs> without even thinking about it. And then I look back and yeah. I'm like, oh, that's weird. Yeah, really. Those are the three elements at play. <laughs> One of the things that made California into the way that it is. The film's enigmatic title is a metaphor for moral corruption by unseen forces. Throughout the film, Jake Giddis refers to his time as a police officer in Chinatown, where you can't always tell what's going on. In Hollywood, the movie's line, forget it, Jake, it's Chinatown, Mm -hmm. has become a mantra for those who have been burned or snubbed by the entertainment industry, the implication being that it's better to let it go than make an issue of it because there's that's nothing just you can how do. it works. Yep, there's nothing you can do about it. There's forces at work that are outside your control. Exactly. Chinatown opens with the 1940s version of the Paramount logo. Love it. Pretty cool, although yeah. the movie is set in 1937. Well, it still looks cool. <laughs> We're in sun-baked pre-war California where morality is fluid. Our story focuses on a private detective existing on the fringes of society. A beautiful socialite is there to pull the detective into the big mess. Mm-hmm. Peak, decadent Hollywood noir. And I felt like a lot of Scorsese's work, Chinatown is a riff on the classics that became a classic itself. Right. And it's sort of hard when you come along later in life like we did. Uh-huh. To think of it like that, because it's just a classic film totally. to us. Yeah. It's part of the AFI Top 100. It's in the National Library, right. whatever. But at the time, it's like a nod to a time forgotten. Yeah, it's really just an homage yeah. to a different time period. But since we were born after it came out, it all feels old. Right. So yeah, obviously, we realize there's like a 40-year difference between when the movie came out and when it's set. But it's all ancient history to us from day one. <laughs> yeah. It's sort of like whenever... Jake LaMotta's doing Marlon Brando lines mm-hmm. from On the Waterfront in Raging Bull. Right. And you're not even understanding. You know what I mean? Like, because Raging Bull, to a lot of people, ends up on the same level or even exceeds On the Waterfront. Yeah. That whole thing of riffing on something, but then going past it in a way. Everything is highly stylized. We have the retro credits and everything. Definitely the score. The score is from. Jerry Goldsmith, considered an all-timer, and he composed it in just 10 days after producer Robert Evans fired Philip Lambro at the last minute, just kind of wasn't feeling it, rejected his work. Yeah, well, I do think it was a crucial change because yeah, the score definitely makes the vibe. It's a favorite of David Lynch's, I'll say that. There's several things in this movie that had me thinking of him and his work. Yeah, it's iconic haunting trumpet solos Mm -hmm. as soon as you hear it it's very distinct it's almost what you would think of as the stereotypical noir soundtrack it's that right exactly ingrained it's like equatable our first story is about curly played by paulie himself burt young yes hard guy to look at the hair i was like oh boy yeah i i was actually thinking when you said hard guy to look at is that how you feel when you look in the mirror yeah every day right you got it (laughs) He's being given some bad news by private investigator Jake Giddis, played by Jack Nicholson. Some upsetting photos of Curly's wife. 
But Curly is just the opening act. Yeah. The headliner on this particular day in Giddis's office comes in the form of a woman identifying herself as Evelyn Mulray. Diane Ladd, right? Played by Diane Ladd, who hires Giddis to trail her husband, Hollis, played by Daryl Zwirling, whom she suspects of infidelity. Should be pointed out that Nicholson was born in the year 1937, which is the year that Chinatown is set. So it seems almost appropriate that he would be Jake Giddis. Hollis Mulray is the chief engineer over at the Los Angeles Department of Water and Power. And in these types of films, the head of the Water and Power Department is someone that people would know. (laughs) (laughs) I like that not only does Jake know who that is immediately, but his associates also do. Right. A known name about town. Yeah, I guess that in the olden times when cities were still developing and growing and if you were just sort of a part of it and yeah, you didn't have the internet and TV and you're reading the newspaper, I guess these people did sort of there just were like, factor into your day-to-day life more. There's probably just like more stories around them because it was more prevalent to what was happening in society. Constantly changing, things being built. Yeah, and there, there was, was just a lot obviously more going nothing on. else to yeah. entertain themselves right. with. <laughs> People were more tuned into their cities. Giddis attends a town meeting and hears Mulray publicly refuse to build a new dam on safety grounds. The problem is water. Los Angeles was constructed in the desert, and now that it is expanding rapidly, they need more water. Hmm. And we'll get more into this as we go, because as Matt said, you might be surprised how much has to do with water. Totally. It all happens pretty quick. He's in the middle of what seems like a pretty standard snoop job, a wife cheating on her husband, and then we have a high-profile rich client come in. We're thinking, okay, this might be your standard femme fatale Yeah, there are situation a, here. quite a few swerves in this story, much like in most film noir. Yeah, and Jake ends up on the case pretty quick. He's trailing Mulray, looking into things. Riding in a little boat, snapping pictures. Originally, the opening scene had an exchange where Curly tells Giddis he's going to kill his unfaithful wife, and Giddis tells him he's not rich enough to get away with murder. That's why they're talking about Curly paying his bill as they come out of the office, and why Giddis says, I only brought it up, referring to Curly's financial situation, to illustrate a point. Robert Town later regretted removing this part of the scene. That exchange I missed probably as much as any in the movie, he said in 1999, because it really foreshadows the whole concept of you've got to be rich to kill somebody and get away with it theme. He's really foreshadowing the whole movie. Right. As we alluded to, Polanski eliminated Giddis's voiceover narration, which was written in the script and filmed the movie so that the audience discovered the clues at the same time that Jake does. To take it a step further, Polanski said that in staying true to the tradition of Raymond Chandler's detective stories, he shot the whole movie from the perspective of the main character. For that reason, Nicholson is present in every scene of the film. To really emphasize that point to the whole audience, the camera is often positioned behind Nicholson, so that we see his back and shoulders. Mm -hmm. And though Town wrote with Nicholson in mind, and Nicholson, along with Polanski, had been searching for a project to do together, 
and Polanski was Evans's first choice to direct this project. It was not all a perfect dream come true for everyone involved. No. At one point, Roman Polanski and Jack Nicholson got into such a heated argument that Polanski smashed Nicholson's portable television with a mop. <laughs> Nicholson used the television to watch Los Angeles Lakers basketball games. Of course. And kept stalling shooting. <laughs> one can understand why that would be frustrating from a director's perspective. You're on a timeline. You're trying to get these shots done. Well, hold on. There's two minutes left in the Lakers game. <laughs> The violence that this stuff inspires. Yeah, there are some legendary fights between yeah. Dunaway and Polanski as well. Definitely. Which we'll get more into when she Although factors into the movie. Nicholson seems to be involved in a lot of crazy-ass Hollywood stories as well. <laughs> well, yeah. I just think that in these days, you could have a vibe and a mood on set that you couldn't get away with now. Definitely. There's much more tension and anger and people I think that certain directors probably saw that as a way to get the best out of people but and people just weren't as guarded because no. it wasn't a time where like every action that you did was being captured on somebody's cell phone and put on the internet literally within minutes of it happening yeah for better or for worse and I would say that ultimately it was for worse because of what happened with me too and just the inability of people to handle a certain amount of maturity and responsibility. But yeah, I think that there was for a long time a don't ask, don't tell understanding going on. You mm -hmm. would not expect your coworkers to run to anyone and report back what happened on set, right. no matter how ridiculous or terrible it was. As I said, for better or worse, and I think it turned into way worse because I think it led to a whole mentality of secrecy and people getting away with all kinds of shit that they should never be able to get away with. But I'm just trying to contextualize that mindset of how you can act like this with each other and then still get it done at the end of the day. Yeah, yeah. Because to me, some of the shit that they would do to each other, you would think is unforgivable. I and know. How do you move on? Especially when we get into the Dunaway Polanski oh, stuff where he's like yanking her hair <laughs> out. and Whatever happened with a coffee cup full of something. <laughs> yeah. And who knows? Some of that shit could be exaggerated yeah, yeah. to the point of absurdity just to be entertaining. I know. You can walk out that door, turn right, hop a streetcar, and within 25 minutes, end up smack in the Pacific Ocean. Now, you can swim in it and you can fish in it, but you can't drink it, and you can't irrigate an orange grove with it. Now, remember, we live next door to the ocean, but we also live on the edge of a desert. Los Angeles is a desert community. Beneath this building, beneath our streets, is a desert. And without water, the dust will rise up and cover us as though we never existed. Now, the Alto Vallejo can save us from this. And I respectfully suggest that eight and one half million dollars is a fair price to pay to keep the desert from our streets and not on top of them. Here, here. Mayor Bagley, Chief from all the departments again. I suppose we'd better take water and power first. Mr. Murray. In case you've forgotten, gentlemen, over 500 lives were lost when the Vanderlip Dam gave way. Core samples have shown that beneath this bedrock is shale similar to the permeable shale in the Vanderlip disaster. 
It couldn't withstand that kind of pressure. And now you propose yet another dirt bank terminus dam with slopes of two and a half to one, 112 feet high and a 12,000 acre water surface. Well, it won't hold. I won't build it, it's that simple. I'm not going to make the same mistake twice. Thank you, General. Vanderlip Dam disaster in the film, which happened in the past, is a reference to the collapse of the St. Francis Dam in 1928, 40 miles northwest of Los Angeles, which had been designed by self-educated engineer William Mulholland. (laughs) I love the idea of a self-educated engineer making a giant dam for a city that kills 400 people. Talk about a different world. Yeah, really. (laughs) The consequent flooding... Killed at least 450 people, a loss of life that remains second only to that from the 1906 San Francisco earthquake and fire in California's history. Now, what movie did we do on this podcast within the last calendar year where we talked about the 1906 San Francisco earthquake and fire? Hmm. If you can pull this out, I'd no, be it's real not. Surprised. I don't know. I'll give you a hint. It was for Greatest October this past year. <sighs> I don't know. <laughs> People out there are just realizing now how checked out Matt is on this podcast. Has no idea what we did in Greatest October. I, I don't know this Greatest October from the Greatest October five years ago. The Lost Boys. Okay. Remember the whole underground hotel? Oh, that's right. That, yeah. Because of the earthquake. I was like, is it Vertigo? It seems like we did Vertigo a lot longer ago. <laughs> that was like pre-COVID. Yeah. <laughs> There you go. And to reiterate, as we've already covered some of this, but just to make sure, the name of water and power engineer Hollis Mulray is a play on William Mulholland, most likely. I don't know that town ever confirmed that, but it seems pretty obvious. A man obsessed with an engineering challenge of epic proportions, Mulholland brought the Owens River to Los Angeles, which turned the previously lush Owens Valley into a virtual desert through a combination of determination and deceit. And if you pay attention during this town council meeting, that guy that runs in with the sheep, mm-hmm. I don't know if his face looked familiar to you at all, but he looks a lot like his sons, okay, Clint and Ron. I see. Rance Howard, who plays the role of an angry farmer at the council meeting, is the father of Ron and Clint Howard and the grandfather yeah, yeah. of Bryce Dallas Howard. Definitely recognizable now. Next up, Jake, with the assistance of binoculars, spies on Mulray at a dry reservoir. He sees him meeting with a boy on horseback. Yeah, some life Hollis seems to be living here. Well, he's got to go out and look at him. Yeah. He's just baffled by what's going on. (laughs) He seems like a stressed man with a lot of pressure, but we don't really know what the specifics are because, as I said, Polanski wanted us to be in the same position as Giddis the whole time. Mm Mm-hmm. So we really don't know much about what's going on. He follows Mulray to the ocean. It gets dark. We see some water being dumped into the ocean. Not really sure what's going on, but it seems to contradict the idea of a drought. 
We also are made aware that there's an approaching election, which gives us a little bit of a time frame as to when this is probably happening leading up to November, probably in October, late October, I'm thinking, is probably when this is set. Mm -hmm. Although there's not really a lot of context clues. I thought the pocket watch trick was pretty cool. I'm sure that it wasn't invented for this movie, but wasn't I on like my it. radar. Yeah. He puts his pocket watch or he has a bunch of pocket watches because this is something he does. He takes one out, he sets the time, he puts it under the tire of Mulray's car so that he'll run over it and the clock will stop and he'll know what time he left and he sees that Mulray actually stayed all night. See, this was the type of stuff I watch it and I'm like, "Man, this is the life we need to live." We need to be private investigators. We only see the most exciting <laughs> stuff in the movies, That's though. That's true. I guarantee it's so boring. Yeah, I know. 99.9% well, well, when of the you time. think about like staking out, that must be just excruciating hours. Yeah. It reminds me of going to like my sister's swim meets when I was a kid. <laughs> I was like, can I please have the car keys so I can go listen to the radio? Because this is so boring. <laughs> Eventually... Jake photographs Mulray in the company of a young woman, and the pictures somehow make their way into the next day's newspaper. Getting a, a little more press. Yeah, uh, there's a little bit of an, an illustration of the chip on his shoulder regarding his profession with that little scene in the barbershop where that guy's right, kind of giving him shit, and he's like, it's an honest living. <laughs> Even though it seems like the definition of a dishonest living, right. really. And then the barber is trying to placate him with the dirty sex joke, which he then immediately Uses. repeats yeah. at his office, not realizing that there's a woman stealing present. material. Who among us? Yeah. <laughs> Duffy. Hey, Walt. Sophie. <clears throat> Go to the little girl's room for a minute. Jake. <laughs> but Mr. Giddies. Sophie. Yes, Mr. Giddies. Jake, Duffy, oh. listen to me, man. I want to tell you a story. So there's this guy, Walsh, you understand? He's tired of screwing his wife. Jake, so a wait problem. a second, Duffy. You're always in such a hurry. So his friend says to him, hey, why ain't you do it like the Chinese do? So he says, well, how do the Chinese do it? And the guy says, well, the Chinese, first they screw a little bit, then they stop. And they go and uh, read a little Confucius, come back, screw a little bit more, then they stop again, go back, and they screw a little Jake. bit more. Walsh, just listen to me for a second. Um, you love this. Now... <clears throat> Then they go back and they screw a little bit more, and then they go out and they contemplate the moon or something like that. It makes it more exciting. So now the guy goes home and he starts screwing his own wife. See? So he screws her for a little bit, and then he stops and he goes out of the room and he reads Life magazine. Then he goes back in, he starts screwing again. He says, excuse me for a minute, honey. And he goes out and he smokes a cigarette. Now his wife is getting sore as hell. He comes back in the room, he starts screwing again. He gets up to start to leave again to go look at the moon. She looks at him and says, hey, what's the matter with you? You're screwing just like a Chinaman. <laughs> Jesus. That <laughs> Barney. Mr. Gittes? Yes. Do you know me? Well, uh, I think I would have remembered. I... Have we ever met? Well, no. Never? Never. At his office, Gittes is confronted by the real Evelyn Mulray, played by Faye Dunaway, who is not happy about anything that has transpired and threatens to sue. That's right, Diane Ladd was a fake, a phony, mm. a fugazi. This leads Giddis to conclude that the fake Evelyn was part of some plot to discredit Mulray. 
So let's talk about Faye Dunway and Evelyn Mulray. Evans originally planned to give the part of Evelyn to his wife, Allie McGraw, but she left him for Steve McQueen, and that, as they say, was that. (laughs) (laughs) You love the impact relationships have on movies. Jane Fonda supposedly was his next choice, and she turned the part down. Julie Christie was also considered, but it was Polanski who fought for Dunaway. I can picture Julie Christie. Yeah. I have a little bit harder of a time picturing Jane Fonda, and I definitely cannot picture Ally McGraw. Julie Christie seems closer to what the final product ends up being. Right. Like, you can see her sliding into a Faye Dunaway role here. Yeah, and I think that's what we're basing it off of, because I know from Town's perspective, he did not really consider Faye Dunaway to be correct casting, but we're probably basing our take on the right. part. I think so. From what she does with it. But I think she more or less fit whatever Polanski had in mind. Although Polanski is a dick and obviously a creep and a criminal and whatever else people want to throw on there, pedophile, Mm -hmm. whatever. Yeah. And a misogynist. And I don't know that he particularly gave a shit about the women in this film. And it seemed like when she had questions about the part, that's what would lead to the fighting between them. And all of those stop asking questions. Different things. <laughs> what do you think motivates my character at this point? I haven't thought about it. Well, that is funny that you say that because that very much is a specific thing. We'll get to in a second. <laughs> Faye Dunaway's distinctive look was inspired by Polanski's memories of his mother, who in the pre World War II era would fashionably wear penciled on eyebrows and have her lipstick shaped in the form of a Cupid's bow. Yeah, those eyebrows are nuts. And just as things were turbulent between Polanski and Nicholson, they were also pretty chaotic and unhinged between Polanski and Dunaway. (laughs) They were notorious for their on-set arguments. During filming, Polanski pulled out some strands of Dunaway's hair. On another occasion, when she asked him what her character's motivation was, he exploded, just say the fucking words, your salary is your motivation. (laughs) (laughs) That's what the money is for. You can't imagine something like this happening on a set today. Like, oh my God, no. Wouldn't Polanski would just be like thrown off the Paramount lot, don't you think? Yeah, he would be thrown out of Hollywood. Yeah. At least we hope. At least we we say that, but we don't know. Yeah. It may still be really fucked up for women, and we'll find out about it in 10 years and nothing changed. Yeah, I don't maybe. Know. <laughs> I, I mean, I'm not ruling it out. It just seems like, well, again, it's the whole cell phone of it all. Yeah, it and does like, seem like. Their fights would be broadcast like Lily Tomlin and there, it would be David like Russell. Re- retweeted like eight million times <laughs> in like twenty seconds. There were many rumors circulating about Faye Dunaway's diva-like behavior during the making of the film. One such was that she refused to flush her own toilet and expected her assistants to do it for her. That seems <laughs> like something somebody just said to make her sound terrible i can't imagine that's true i do love that level of stardom though on another occasion while filming a scene in a car roman polanski refused to let her urinate so he could finish the scene she then urinated in a cup and threw it in his face (laughs) (laughs) which is hilarious (laughs) could you imagine something like that happening and then the next day you're all back again filming (laughs) well that is one thing that you can say about people's work ethic or whatever like there was far more resiliency (laughs) yeah this insane shit would happen and then people would be like well i guess we're gonna have to keep working all right next take (laughs) yeah like i said 
I think it's worth maybe taking some of these things with a grain of salt. Yeah. Not that they're all lies, but I do think that things get exaggerated. And then... Well, even like the scene that Polanski's in, I don't know if you heard about this at all, but I read about it or it's in your notes, but the whole thing with like the knife, there was a legend that he really cut Nicholson's oh, yeah. nose. And those two would like actually play it up. Right, yeah, I didn't put that in there. But yeah. basically what you're describing is that people would ask how they did it and they would explain it and they used this complicated knife that would... Whatever. It was on yeah, a yeah. hinge and... They just got tired of explaining it, so they eventually just started saying that it he was cut real. him for real, yeah. yeah, and it became like a thing. Yeah, I don't know. Oddly enough, though, it was Polanski who preferred Dunaway for the part, which I did say. Evans was leaning heavily towards Fonda after McGraw was not an option, but Polanski got his way, and then they fought like crazy. <laughs> Be careful what you wish for. It's one of those things, though, and I don't know what Dunaway said about it. She probably has commented on it at some point in her life, but... Who knows? To both of them, it may have just been one of those things where that's just the way it was and there's really no hard feelings and then you move on. I don't really know. But it does seem insane. The fact that he like pulled her hair out too, you can't like read past something like that in today's day and age and just be like, Yeah, that seems normal. The idea of a director getting physical with a woman in his movie in any way, it seems like there's just no way that could ever happen. And it shouldn't. <laughs> to be clear, it shouldn't. But the casualness with which some of these facts are just sort of thrown out there, and you're like, wait a minute, he yanked her hair out? Like, I know. What the fuck? <laughs> what was everyone else doing? Just yeah. standing there, or were they trying to break it up? Or Well, and I thought I read that when that happened, she had a complete meltdown. and Probably. Which, rightfully so. I'm just saying, like, these things are happening that are ruining potentially days of filming. It's like... Ron Burgundy and yeah. Christina Applegate. Everyone's like, let them work it out. They're like holding them back. <laughs> I know. All right. Break for lunch. <laughs> Wait, I got to wash the pee off of me that splashed on when she threw it in his yeah. face. <laughs> in the aftermath of the real Evelyn's visit, Giddis goes to Mulray's office. Mulray's not there, so Giddis snoops, eventually pocketing a handful of business cards from an associate of Mulray's named Yelburton which he'll put to use later. So at this stage, we have a private eye who's been hired for something, and now that thing has concluded, theoretically. Yeah. Because the whole point of it was to discredit Mulray. It happens. It ends up in the paper. So what exactly is Giddis doing? Well, I guess I would say that he's somebody who doesn't take to being treated like a pawn. Absolutely. And now he's thinking like, wait a minute, what am I doing? I think he's embarrassed that they got one over on him. Yeah, I think so. Because if you're being used for something, sometimes it's better to find out what that is right? in case it ends up being a huge deal and it's beyond your control. Totally. I think he's just trying to learn more about the situation at this point. The water department has hired a security chief named Claude Mulvahill. The context clues allow us to understand that perhaps Mr. Mulvahill is a disreputable character of some kind, but he and Giddis seem to know each other and have a past. Next, Jake tries Mulray at home, and we recognize the butler, James Hong, mm-hmm. who was just in Big Trouble in Little China. That's right. And Everything Everywhere All at Once, wow. still acting. Definitely. Crazy. Mulray's not at home either, but it gives Jake another opportunity to converse with Evelyn, who seems completely different now than she was back in the office. She wants to 
drop the lawsuit entirely and make the whole thing go away, but now Jake is the one who doesn't want to brush it all aside. What exactly is going on here? I'd like to know more. Why am I being used as a pawn in something that I can not really understand? He then heads to a closed reservoir, gaining access with one of Yelburton's business cards. I guess to search for clues or to continue searching for Mulray? This is where his wife said that he might be. He He finds him. Likes to go for walks during his lunch. But instead of clues, Jake runs into an old police associate named Lieutenant Lou Escobar. Mm -hmm. Now, did you recognize Lou Escobar? He's recognizable to me. What I I did mention this when we just did this movie. Okay. Lou Escobar is played by an actor named Perry Lopez, who plays Bronson's partner in Kinjite. Oh, yeah, right. Okay, yep. (laughs) Which is weird, because he barely talks in Kinjite, and he's in one of the most famous best movies ever, basically. And he's kind of, what would you say, like the fifth lead in this movie? Yeah. Something like that? Yeah, I think that's Once you get past Nicholson... Dunaway, Houston, he's probably right up there with anyone else after that. Yeah, he probably has the next most lines. Hollis Mulray's body has been discovered in the reservoir, having apparently drowned. Well, it was inevitable. You knew it had to happen. It's a noir movie. The mystery over trying to embarrass the head of the water guy, whatever the fuck, that's not enough for a movie, and neither is... Bringing water to Los Angeles, as fascinating as that may actually be, we need a murder at the center of this Absolutely. story. Yeah. So here we are. I love that his eyes are completely bulging out. <laughs> the dead, yeah, the dead body kind of looked like the fisherman from The Fog. <laughs> In the immediate aftermath, as they're both being questioned, Evelyn and Jake both lie to the police about what has happened, what has led them to this moment. They don't acknowledge the fact that a fake Mrs. Mulray hired Jake to take pictures of Hollis. They completely omit that. Because it's almost as if on some instinctual level they feel like the police will get in the way and they need to be the ones to figure this out. Mm -hmm. Even if Evelyn isn't exactly saying that, there has to be some motivation for her to be hiding these things from the police. I don't really know. I, I will say, and I'll... I'll be honest, I'm not anything close to a Chinatown expert. In fact, it probably would have helped considerably if I would have been able to finish this book. And one of the things that I think I struggle with the most is figuring out Evelyn's character. It is tough. Is all of it just the dark secret she's hiding? Is that the whole thing that explains everything? Because there's some motivations here, and maybe that's what she was asking Roman about. Yeah. I don't always understand like what her thought process is other than she's like you said severely damaged right and i guess you could just file that all under like a general fear mistrust of everybody and everything Mm -hmm. but i don't know because it's unclear to me whether or not she actually wants to find out who murdered her husband or or does she just taking the police's word for it that it was an accident and she's right at some point in the movie it seems like her only motivation is getting her daughter away from where they are how that factors into what she's doing now early in the movie. Well, I don't think that becomes her motivation until, I guess, at some point yeah. she figures out who killed her husband. Okay, sure. And what's happening. Because I, I actually don't think she really grasps the situation right now, and she's only lying because she wants it true. all to go away right. right now. And then 
it's almost through what Jake does in the movie yeah. that makes her realize what's happening. Yep. Maybe. So what is this movie really about? What is the inspiration? The California Water Wars, which is a real thing, believe it or not. And it lasted for over a century, from 1902 to 2006. So if you're thinking 2006, that's almost ongoing, essentially. Because, believe it or not, as the city grows over a century, they need more water and more water of and course. more water. Right. And there's only so much water, even though you're next to the Pacific Ocean, that water is essentially useless. Right. So it has to come from somewhere, which makes it a finite resource, even though it does rain and it seems like water is infinite, but in certain parts of the world, it's truly not. <laughs> Correct. So yes, this is an ongoing thing for a long, long time. The California Water Wars were a series of political conflicts between the city of Los Angeles and farmers and ranchers in the Owens Valley of Eastern California over water rights. As Los Angeles expanded during the late 19th century, it began outgrowing its water supply. Fred Eaton, mayor of Los Angeles, promoted a plan to take water from Owens Valley to Los Angeles via an aqueduct. The aqueduct construction was overseen by William Mulholland and was finished in 1913. The water rights were acquired through political fighting and, des- and, as described by one author, chicanery, subterfuge, and a strategy of lies. That almost feels like narration from like the beginning of Royal Tenenbaums or something. Like You can hear that in Alec Baldwin's voice. <laughs> it's like a picture of like Gene Hackman and Owen Wilson like on a lawn or something with flappy hats and guns pointed <laughs> at guns, yeah. yeah. Water from the Owens River started being diverted to Los Angeles in 1913, precipitating conflict and eventual ruin of the valley's economy. By the 1920s, so much water was diverted from the Owens Valley that agriculture became difficult. This led to the farmers trying to destroy the aqueduct in 1924. Los Angeles prevailed and kept the water flowing by 1926. Owens Lake at the bottom of Owens Valley was completely dry due to water diversion. Oof. As you may imagine, as the city continued to grow through the years, as did the need for more and more water, which led to more and more conflicts and more and more litigation, there's a history that extends back 120 years, but also continues onward probably forever, because as I said, in certain parts of the world, water is very much a finite resource. There's only so much, no matter what. And if it doesn't rain for months at a time, sometimes in the desert, then they have to come up with new solutions. At this point, on his own, Jake begins to investigate Mulray's death potentially as a homicide. He immediately discovers another man in the morgue who also supposedly drowned, this time in a bone-dry riverbed. Yeah, shocking. Shocking way to go. Although known drunk. But it was 1937. Yeah. Who wasn't a known (laughs) drunk? (laughs) There wasn't that much to do, to your point. Jake then encounters the boy on the horse, the same one he saw Mulray with, and learns that although there is supposedly a drought, huge quantities of water are released from the reservoir every night. Poking around and witnessing it for himself in person, Jake is warned off by Mulvihill and a little henchman, played by Roman Polanski himself, who slashes Jake's left nostril with a blade. So here we are, 1974. I would say this is the peak of Jack Nicholson's face. And now we're depriving the audience 
for a huge part of this movie. Correct. And it's just weird in general. Forget Jack Nicholson. It's crazy to me that in any movie, you're taking your lead and putting bandages all over his nose. Well, Mad Max Fury Road covering his face. That's the Tom Hardy thing, though. (laughs) Yeah, I know. know? It is weird. I, I feel like it's almost intentionally trying to make him seem less cool. Yeah. Because there's such a and cool swagger I, to Jack Nicholson. Right. It's not that they're trying to make him seem like a loser, because he's ne- no. they never go that route in this movie, but they don't want him to element, be too right? awesome. Yeah, I think it's out, he's out of his element. <laughs> yeah. I think that if he was just was like there in all of his glory, yeah. he's almost too overpowering. Right. <laughs> I think he is the cool guy in the world of, I take photographs catching guys cheating on their wives. <laughs> as cool as that can get. Yeah. That's his scene. Later at his office, Jake receives a call from Ida Sessions, who identifies herself as the fake Mrs. Mulray. She refuses to disclose the name of the man who hired her, but she tells Jake to check the day's obituaries. Mm -hmm. This is certainly convenient that Ida is feeling guilty enough to provide this clue for no apparent reason. (laughs) Well, sometimes you need that. (laughs) Because let's be honest, Ida Sessions, as we're going to find out later when... Jake goes through her purse, is an actress. She has a Screen Actors Guild card, which implies that she probably needs money. She's the prototypical, stereotypical, young, attractive woman coming to L.A. to be an actress, trying to make it, not making it, trying to make ends meet, gets sucked into this, pretends to be Mrs. Mulray. We get it. 99.9% of the time, that person is not going to be involved in the story after a certain point. I don't know why she would actually call this guy and be like... (laughs) Oh, wait, by the way, I feel bad about what's happened. I didn't know it was going to turn into this. I'm not going to tell you, but I'll give you a clue. (laughs) That's also weird. (laughs) Which, at first, you think the clue might be, I don't know, something directly to who hired her? I know, that's what I And then the clue is like so obscure that it's a miracle that he's able to put this together. (laughs) Because I don't think I would have ever figured this out. (laughs) Thank you for coming. Yes, sir. Drink? Tom Collins uh, with lime, not lemon, please. Tom Collins with lime. I got your check in the mail. Yes. As I said, I was very grateful. Uh, Mrs. Mulray, I'm afraid that's not good enough. How much would you like? I'll stop it. The money's fine. It's generous. But uh, I think you shortchanged me on the story. I have. I think so. Something else besides the death of your husband was bothering you. You were upset, but not that upset. Mr. Giddies, don't tell me how I feel. Sorry. Look. You sue me, your husband dies, you drop the lawsuit like a hot potato, all of it quicker than the wind from a duck's ass. Excuse me. Then you ask me to lie to the police. It wasn't much of a lie. If your husband was killed, it was. This could look like you paid me off to withhold evidence. But he wasn't killed. Small Ray, I think you're hiding something. Well, I suppose I am. 
Actually, I knew about the affair. How did you find out? My husband. He told you? And you weren't the least bit upset. I was grateful. Mrs. Mulray, you'll have to explain that. Why? Look, I do matrimonial work. It's my métier. When a wife tells me that she's happy that her husband is cheating on her, it runs contrary to my experience. Unless what? She was cheating on him. Were you? I dislike the word cheat. Did you have affairs? But Mr. Giddies. Did he know about it? Well, I wouldn't run home and tell him every time I went to bed with someone, if that's what you mean. Is there anything else you want to know about me? Where were you when your husband died? I can't tell you. You mean you don't know where you were? I mean, I can't tell you. You were seeing someone, too. For very long? I don't see anyone for very long, Mr. Giddies. It's difficult for me. Now, I think you know all you need know about me. I didn't want publicity. I didn't want to go into any of this then or now. Is that all? Oh, by the way, uh, what does this C stand for? Cross. That's your maiden name? Yes. Why? No reason. You must have had a reason to ask me that. No, I'm just a snoop. Jake and Evelyn, they spend more time together. I think he's suspicious of her. Is she hiding something? The audience also feels that way, but... I appreciated the slow burn sexual tension, which you were mentioning a little bit before we started recording that you were surprised that it took them so long to hook up at all. But I liked it because you're not sure. Right. You can kind of tell that they want to fuck each other. And that's almost as fun as them actually getting to that point. Yeah. It almost would be better if they never did in a way. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think in classic noir, you're kind of ready for it to happen early. Right. It always seems to be one of the things that maybe gets the guy more involved than right. he would have been otherwise. Yeah, and I still think you're supposed to think that now. Yeah, yeah. That once he's got a look at what the real Evelyn Mulray looked like, he was more interested than uh-huh. maybe he would have stayed. I'd love to know. take the case. She does reveal that she was potentially also having an affair. Now, this is also I was taking it as very like confusing. Ongoing various affairs. Yeah. Because the movie, I'm going to also sound like an idiot when about this movie several times. I, already I said I didn't understand her mo- motivation. Now I'm going to say I don't understand exactly what the truth about Hollis was. They never fully explain it. They well, just kind of allow you to try to figure out exactly what was going on. And now I don't want to ruin the whole movie even though people know that we spoil every well, single Well, there's definitely thing. some intentional ambiguity. I don't really know for sure whether or not her husband was actually having an affair with anyone. I don't know. I would assume not. But then this conversation is weird because she's saying that like they both had affairs or something. So then you're like, well, wait a minute. Was Hollis actually having an affair with the woman that he's photographed with? Because if he is, that's really fucked up and weird. And I don't think they're suggesting that, but I don't know. 
Do you think that Hollis ever cheated on his wife or no? I was still thinking yes. But not I, with the woman that they photograph him with. No. Because I think she would be probably pretty pissed about that. Well, I was thinking, <laughs> I was just taking that their marriage is in a weird place. He does sort of seem like the yeah. white knight in shining armor when she tells her full story later. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I don't know. There definitely was supposed to be an age gap and oh, definitely some weirdness. I don't know. And his relationship with her father, I don't know. It just seems like their marriage had to be loose. <laughs> yeah. Do you think it was just for show? I, I was kind of feeling some of that. Maybe, but it doesn't I, we, answer the big yeah. question about what he's doing with this young True, woman. True. Right. I'm sort of confused as to what they're trying to say. We'll we'll get back into that more. Sure. Evelyn reveals her maiden name to be Cross, making her the daughter of the very wealthy Noah Cross. Great lines in this movie. In a way, the story is good, and I like it, but I think what really elevates it is there's a lot of really smart lines of dialogue that aren't necessarily super flashy because I don't know that a mainstream audience is going to like come out of this repeating a bunch of the lines. That's right. But there's some really great stuff where he's just fed up with this bitch dragging her feet, like not giving him straight answers. And he's just like, I really don't need to be involved with this at all. And you can feel that frustration. He's just like, I like my nose. I like breathing through it. Right. <laughs> I actually think you can see a straight line from the cool roguish anti-hero of Jake Giddies to what became the definitive version in Han Solo just three years later. Oh yeah. I think that's still there. I that's agree. very present. Yeah. Because you have to think about how movies were pre-New American Cinema. They were very square, and the right. heroes were very generic. If you think about westerns or yeah. whatever, the heroes are very pure, straightforward, heroic. But I'm not saying Jake Giddis is the first anti-hero. Obviously not. But on a very popular high level with one of the best actors ever. Yeah, yeah. This is very much in that same vein of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, which would come out what, the next year, yeah. right? Or around the same time. All these things are coming out around the same time. There's all these different movies happening. I totally see the Han Solo thing, though. This dude who seems like his motivations are good, but he's more like just being drawn into something. Yeah. But then he can't get him, he can't pull himself out of it, even though he kind of knows that he shouldn't be continuing to pull at this string. Yeah. I don't know. I just put in my notes here that this would somehow morph into a conversation about respect for Nicholson's career choices. And I'm just sort of baffled as to how I made that connection in my head when I made these notes. <laughs> I'm like, where? I know that in my head I had a very specific path of getting from the Han Solo thing to just a generic respecting Nicholson's career choices thing. But he never really went that route of being the traditional action hero or anything like that. And in fact, I think at this point in Nicholson's career, even though it still seems early, he had been around for a long time. His acting credits start in the 50s. Yeah, I know. That's he was nuts. born in 1937. So he's already kind of old by this right. point for a, a movie star. So instead of realizing, oh, I'm reaching my peak in my late 30s, let me just become like action star number five or whatever just do like pieces of shit he really morphs into more of a character actor at a certain point starting in the late 70s and then up through the 80s into the 90s really yeah 
a lot of his choices after this, you know, after his peak, which is this run that he's on now. We already did this last year with One Floor of the Cuckoo's Nest. I'm not going to get into his whole filmography, but this is it. This is the era where he's the best actor, basically. And his career choices are insane. You run down this filmography during this time period, and it is nuts. But yeah, I think just more in his ability to be the coolest guy in the room, to be the precursor to a Han Solo, but then see, like, you know, I'm getting a little older. He was never a guy who was in incredible shape. He's losing his hair. (laughs) So he just kind of eases back into a more reserved thing where he's showing up in terms of endearment or broadcast news and just hitting a grand slam or a few good men where he's not really the lead of these movies, but he's just showing up and hitting yeah. it out of the ballpark and then putting on a clinic. Yeah. And it, I don't know. It's really cool. And this is a really great performance too. Although I don't know that I would really put this on the same level for me personally as a well, definitive Nicholson because compared he's to more understated in this. Yeah, not as much charisma as we're used to from him. For me, the definitive ones are probably One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest and The Shining, and then also. But you see it, even though it's not as big of a movie. But the last detail too. Yeah, 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 yeah. Maybe Joker. Yeah. In Batman, that's Mm -hmm. like a late era. That kind of defines like the last (laughs) chapter of his career. Well, then bringing it all back for one more hurrah with The Departed. The Departed, he almost doesn't seem like the same guy. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) There's like two different versions of Nicholson, just like there's two different versions of Pacino. Right. (laughs) I think you better come with me. But why? There's nothing more to say. Will you get my car, please? Okay, go home. But in case you're interested, your husband was murdered. Somebody has been dumping thousands of tons of water from the city's reservoirs, and we're supposed to be in the middle of a drought. He found out about it, and he was killed. There's a waterlogged drunk in the morgue, involuntary manslaughter if anybody wants to take the trouble, which they don't. It seems like half the city is trying to cover it all up, which is fine by me. But Mrs. Mulray, I goddamn near lost my nose, and I like it. I like breathing through it. And I still think that you're hiding something. Giddis makes a return trip to just point out right now. I'm sure you've noticed. I'm calling him Jake and Giddis. This is oh, one yeah, of those okay. movies where I'm doing both. That's fine. Well, he goes by both names in the movie. Well, yeah, but Many sometimes when you're doing Giddis. like a, a well, definitive okay. wrap-up, you should just stick to one. But sometimes yeah. I specifically, I'm making a note of it in my head that I'm doing it both ways because I like to do that for certain characters in movies. Right. I don't know why. Okay. Anyway, he makes a return trip to try and see Yell Burton at Mulray's old office, and he learns that Evelyn's father, Noah Cross, used to literally own the water department, but it seems that Hollis Mulray thought the public should own the water instead. In fact, they were partners back in the day, which really muddies the waters and confuses things some more. I was thinking a little bit about comparing Jake's nose to Bobby's fingers in U-Turn, because when someone asks what happened and he says he cuts himself shaving, they say you ought to be more careful. That's right. This is not the only time that I've written down U-turn. There's 
definitely a lot of similarities, which I was yeah. aware of. I was not coming into this blind. I kind of knew when we did U-Turn that there was going to be a little bit of Crossover. overlap yeah. with this. So the official party line is that they're diverting some of this water for orange groves up in this Northwest Valley. To help the farmers. And that what you're seeing being dumped into the ocean at night is just some runoff, and that is completely normal. That's <laughs> what they're saying. It does look like quite a bit of runoff. <laughs> yeah. We're not the, talking about some drips. Yeah, to the point that we're not being responsible, if that is the case. People are drowning in it, <laughs> <Yeah>. supposedly. <laughs> When Jake returns to his office, Evelyn is already there waiting. Even though it kind of already felt like he was working for her anyway, she officially hires Jake to investigate the death of her husband. We find out that, yes, she married her father's business partner. This all seems very strange. Yeah. This is a good way, though, for him to get paid for something that he was going to do anyways. (laughs) True. And again, I'm coming back to Polanski's decision to sort of mold the story to be in that Raymond Chandler style so that the audience is learning these same things at the same time right. that Jake is. So that when we are aware that Evelyn is married to or was married to her father's old business partner, we find that out. We appropriately categorize that as a weird fact, but we don't really know what to do with it mm-hmm. because it's not connected to anything yet. It does seem like there was a falling out between her father and Hollis over the ownership of the water and then subsequently the Vanderlip Dam accident. She thinks the two of them stopped speaking at a certain point, but we and Jake already know that to not be true because when they were trying to get photographs of Hollis, he was spotted having a public argument with Noah Cross in the street outside of a grocery store, I believe. Yeah. So I guess it's time to go see Noah Cross. As long as you don't serve the chicken that way. (laughs) (laughs) Tell me, um, what are the police say? They're calling it an accident. Who's the investigating officer? Lou Escobar. He's a lieutenant. You know him? Oh, yeah. Where from? We used to work together in Chinatown. Would you call him a capable man? Very. Honest? As far as it goes. Of course, he has to swim in the same water we all do. Of course, but you've no reason to think he's bungled the case. None. Not too bad. Too bad? Hmm. Disturbs me. It makes me think you're taking my daughter for a ride. Financially speaking, of course. What are you charging her? My usual fee. What's the bonus if I get results? Are you uh, sleeping with her? Come, come, Mr. Gift. You don't have to think about that to remember do you? If you want an answer to that question, Mr. Cross, I'll put one of my men on the job. Good afternoon. Mr. Gibbs. Giddis. Giddis. You're dealing with a disturbed woman who just lost her husband. I don't want her taken advantage of. Sit down. What for? You may think you know what you're dealing with, but believe me, you don't. Why is that funny? It's what the district attorney used to tell me in Chinatown. Yeah? Was he right? Exactly what do you know about me? Sit down.
Mainly that you're rich and too respectable to want your name in the newspapers. Of course I'm respectable. I'm old. Politicians, ugly buildings, and whores all get respectable if they last long enough. Legendary filmmaker John Huston portrays Noah Cross, a real larger-than-life Hollywood figure, a through-line to a different age. Yeah. At one point, Houston was apparently offered the chance to direct the film himself, but turned it down. Kind of reminiscent of Fritz Lang being in contempt, or Sidney Pollack in Eyes Wide Shut and Michael Clayton. It's always cool to see directors pop up in these things. His performance in this movie really uh, had me thinking of Daniel Plainview and There Will Be Blood. It's kind of out there that Daniel Day-Lewis was doing like a John Huston voice, but it's almost like... He's kind of like hunched over a little bit. Well, yeah, you can definitely see the motivation. It's sort of like a combination between Houston himself and then the film, The Treasure of Sierra Madre. Yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. Cross's mispronunciation of Giddis' last name wasn't in the script. John Houston just couldn't get it right, so Polanski had Nicholson add a line trying to correct him, and after that, just let it go. He calls him (laughs) Gitz the whole time. Right. At the time of filming, Jack Nicholson had just embarked on his long-standing relationship with Angelica Houston. This made his scenes with her father, John Houston, rather uncomfortable, especially as the only time Angelica was on set was the day they were filming the scene where Noah Cross interrogates Nicholson's character with Mr. Giddy's Do You Sleep With My Daughter. Wow. You gotta love when life just bleeds into art. Yeah. I'm sure, though, even though he comes across as this rough, gruff potentially overbearing overprotective father i think they all sure are used to this life of dating each other and it's just part of hollywood absolutely i'm sure he didn't think twice about it under the guise of protecting his daughter cross questions jake over lunch at cross's club cross offers to double jake's fee plus give him ten thousand dollars if he searches for mulray's missing mistress the girl he was photographed with by jake shortly before his death So now you can really cash in on this whole thing. Yeah, he's working two angles at once. (laughs) I think Town said that he thought that Houston was the second best cast actor in the film after Nicholson and really thought that John Houston embodied the character of Noah Cross the way that he was imagining it. And yeah, there just really aren't a lot of guys out there like John Houston. No, I know. That's what's so cool about Chinatown. If we were to do the gimmick we did in Wild Things, which we're not going to do, which is recast the movie, we would inevitably pick the six or eight biggest parts. And then because it's a podcast and we're trying to make it fun and also because of a lack of insider knowledge and all of those things, we would ultimately just pick six to eight people you have heard of and just give them the parts. But back then in 1974 and in prior decades, there wasn't this star obsession with every single movie. Having Jack Nicholson and Faye Dunaway was more than enough. Right, and then you fill the rest of it with... People that made sense for the part. Exactly. Now, not every movie's like that. I'm not saying that. But I will say that it does seem like the art of character actors is a dying art. There just isn't a lot of people that fit that and have a lot of interesting looks and voices. Well, now it's like, who can we get to be the cameo type appearance for those roles? Yeah, especially in comedy. That's yeah, all yeah. comedy is now is random cameos. There aren't really equivalents to some of these people now. Sure, you would be able to cast some of the lesser parts pretty easily because 
they don't really stand out as much. But the Noah Cross role, you're not going to find anyone as interesting, probably. I know. As John Huston to do that part. Do you remember the last time you saw Mulray? Uh, my age, you uh, tend to forget. It was five days ago outside the Pig and Whistle, and you had one hell of an argument. <clears throat> I got the pictures in my office, if that'll help you remember. What was the argument about? My daughter. What about her? Just find the girl, Mr. Kitts. I happen to know Hollis was fond of her. I'd like to help her if I can. I had no idea you and Hollis were that fond of one another. Hollis Mulray made this city, and he made me a fortune. We were a lot closer than Evelyn realized. If you want to hire me, I still have to know what the argument was about. My daughter's a very jealous woman. I didn't want her to find out about the girl. How did you find out? I still got a few teeth left in my head and a few friends in town. Okay. I'll, uh... I'll have my secretary draw up the papers. Tell me, uh, are you frightened for the girl or what Evelyn might do to her? Just find the girl. I'll look into it as soon as I've checked out some orange groves. Orange groves? We'll be in touch, Mr. Cross. At the Hall of Records, Giddies discovers that much of the Northwest Valley has recently changed ownership He then visits an orange grove in the valley, but is attacked by angry landowners who believe him to be an agent of the water department, which they claim is sabotaging the water supply to force them out. Okay, so a lot of contradictions here. Something's not quite adding up. Although I don't think any of us were ever actually buying that story. Evelyn comes to retrieve Jake in the valley, and while they drive back to the city, he lays it all out. He deduces that the water department is drying up land intentionally so that the value of it will decrease and it can be bought up cheaply and that Hollis Mulray was murdered when he discovered the plan. Part of the discovery is matching up his own investigative work with the clue provided by Ida Sessions regarding the obituaries, in case you forgot. Some of this property in the valley was seemingly purchased by recently deceased retirement home residents. Yeah. Jake and Evelyn bluff their way into the retirement home and (laughs) confirm that other real estate deals were surreptitiously transacted in the names of the unknowing residents. Their visit is interrupted by the suspicious director who has called Mulvihill. This is one of the more random little interludes of the movie, the two of them going to this retirement home. It almost feels like it's from something else. Right. Because it's not really funny or anything, but it has the elements of almost a farcical thing where they're pretending to be other people and and they're on this weird side quest. He's asking if they allow people in of the Jewish persuasion and mm-hmm. the guy's like of course not or whatever, which Roman Polanski is Jewish and uh-huh. then in the background there was like an upside down pentagram in the mirror if you pay attention to that scene and so people were like, "Oh, this is supposed to be like a satanic place or something." Oh boy. Because they won't let Jewish people in or something. Uh-huh. I don't know, just some little 
anything like that. But yeah, it's all very weird. And then the old people are there and they seem completely oblivious. And it seems like they're related to people who are in on this scam or something. Right, right. On the one hand, it feels like you could cut this all out and lose nothing. But on the other hand, it's kind of fun and weird to just have Evelyn and Jake have these scenes together where they're running around on their little adventure. Yes. It's just kind of out of nowhere. You're like, where is this place? All of a sudden, it's an Indiana Jones movie. <laughs> Jake's able to get the jump on Mulva Hill and beat him up a little bit. They're able to run away and escape. I did like how, as they're trying to drive away, they're literally shooting at them. Mm-hmm. They're shooting at Jake and Evelyn. What if they just shot Evelyn right here? Well, Doesn't yeah. that seem like that would just blow up in their faces? Like Maybe we shouldn't have gotten that out of control. There's a lot of irresponsible gunplay going on in this movie. <laughs> Because they also shoot at Jake at the farm. Yeah. Well, what well, if those you killed are, him? Those are just farmers who think he's a trespasser. They're not in on the conspiracy. No, I know. <laughs> just <laughs> bury the body underneath the orange tree. Well, it was 1937. If you shot somebody on your own property, people would not care. Right. True. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, as they're firing Malva Hill and this other guy at Jake and Evelyn, I mean, they're not exactly being subtle with the need to keep all of this a secret. No. <laughs> After escaping Mulva Hill and his thugs, Jake and Evelyn hide out at Evelyn's house and do eventually sleep together. While talking, Jake reveals that during his days as a police officer in Chinatown, he once tried to protect a woman he loved from being hurt, and in the end, inadvertently making sure she was hurt. Oh, boy. <laughs> we might be able to see where this is headed. A little foreshadowing. Yeah. The dialogue includes the lines, what did you do in Chinatown, as little as possible. These were based on a real-life conversation between screenwriter Robert Town and a vice cop who used to work in Chinatown. The cop explained that due to the complicated use of dialects and the multiple gangs acting in Los Angeles' Chinatown, the police were uncertain whether their own actions were actually assisting crime victims or were assisting gangs in exploiting the victims. We also learn a little bit about the flaw in one of Evelyn's irises in her eyes. Again, maybe a little bit of some painful foreshadowing. To you, Mrs. Mulray. Frankly, tonight you saved my... Uh, you saved my neck. Tell me, Mr. Kittis. Does this often happen to you? What's that? Well, I'm judging only on the basis of one afternoon and an evening, but uh, if this is how you go about your work, I'd say you'd be lucky to uh, get through a whole day. Actually, this hasn't happened to me for a long time. When was the last time? In Chinatown. What were you doing there? Working for the district attorney. Doing what? As little as possible. The district attorney gives his men advice like that? They do in Chinatown. Why did you leave the police force? Um, do you have any um, peroxide or uh, anything like that? Surely. Hmm? You come this way? Nasty cut. 
I had no idea. Hmm. Oh, sorry. There. Is it painful? Mm. It must be painful. What's wrong? Your eye. What about it? What? Something black in the green part of your eye. Oh, that. It's, um, it's flawed in the iris. Flaw? Yes, sir. Just a sort of birthmark. Everybody that works there. Where? Chinatown, everybody. To me, it was just bad luck. What? You can't always tell what's going on. Like with you. Was there a woman involved? Of course. Dead? During the night, Evelyn receives a phone call, and she says she must leave suddenly, but won't tell Jake where she's going, instead asking him to trust her. She also warns him that her father is dangerous. Obviously, Jake doesn't trust her. Why would he? He breaks one of Evelyn's taillights, and he follows her car to a house in the suburbs where, through a window, he sees Evelyn comforting her late husband's mistress. He then accuses Evelyn of holding the woman hostage, but she tells Jake that the woman is her sister, Catherine. Again, more foreshadowing, because when she gets frustrated and upset and then is confronted in the car, after we've already learned about the eye imperfection, she leans her head on the car horn, causing the horn to beep. Oh boy, yes. (laughs) Finally trying to get some sleep... Jake receives a couple of anonymous phone calls luring him to Ida Sessions' apartment 
where he finds her body. This was weird, too, because it seems like they confirm one of the cops was the one calling him to come to the apartment. Okay. Right? I think so. And it had to be because they're almost there in like a sting. Yeah, they were they waiting. Pop out of the bathroom. I guess they want to talk to him and they don't know how to get him. I don't know. It seems weird, though. It just doesn't seem. I know. There's like this something thing a cop where it's do. like they keep trying to tie him into the real crimes that are happening, even yeah. though he's not. And they do that up until the very end. Yeah. For sure. But even still. It just seems like a weird way to go about things for mm-hmm. a cop to do that. Because in the context of the film, you're thinking that whoever's calling him is going to be more tied in with the overarching conspiracy and that this is well, some plan to kill him or something. Yeah. It's just the corruption. The police are somehow kind of casually well, Right, involved. but I mean more direct. Yeah. In other words, when we find out specifically right. who the players are, which I think is pretty obvious, but... That it's going to be tied in with that, not we think that this guy is actually a criminal and we just want to fuck with him or right. whatever their thought process is. It just is a weird misdirect to have it not really be anyone involved with what's going on. That's true. But he does have a minute alone with the body and he searches Ida's purse, finds a $2 bill and a Screen Actors Guild card. Escobar is already there with some other cops waiting at Ida's apartment. He reveals the police now think Hollis Mulray was murdered, which is different from where they were before. Just like Ida Sessions, he had salt water in his lungs, but he was found in fresh water in the reservoir. So he didn't actually drown in the reservoir. Escobar believes that Evelyn murdered her husband and tells Jake that he needs to produce her quickly. Jake with another unbelievable line. (laughs) you're dumber than you think I think you are. (laughs) It is such a dumb theory. Right. How the fuck would Evelyn be able to drown her husband at an undetermined location where it has salt water and then somehow move the body into the reservoir? I know. What, by herself? Yeah. I I don't understand what their thought process is. How much does she weigh? It doesn't look like she's carrying a human male that's dead. Plus... When wives kill their husbands, it's usually a crime of passion. I hate to generalize, but what are the chances in 1937 a housewife, a woman, is going to murder her husband in this fashion, this convoluted way of moving bodies and drowning? Who's holding him underwater? Her? I know. (laughs) So let's talk a little bit about Robert Evans, the (laughs) sun-baked mogul looming over these proceedings and being such a huge part of Hollywood history, Hollywood lore, involved with The Godfather, and we talked about him then. Obviously, Mm -hmm. he was the head of Paramount at that time. The film's producer, Robert Evans, lived from 1930 to 2019, and he was the head of production for Paramount Pictures from 1966 to 1974. He is credited with taking a floundering studio and turning it into a leading company of the film market, he had what could only really be described as a meteoric rise, too. He only really got in the film industry, I think, maybe less than a decade before he became the head of Paramount. He greenlit several important crime films of the 1970s, such as the first two Godfather films. Evans was then later convicted of cocaine trafficking in 1980 and was implicated in the murder of theatrical producer Roy Radin in 1983, 
despite his lifelong protestations of innocence in both cases, it's his like, career declined considerably. Just let it be a lesson. When you strike gold, start figuring out like an escape yeah, plan that you can be it, satisfied a part with. Part of it is the ego. You yeah. just can do whatever you want. I know. Who knows? Maybe he is innocent in those things, but it definitely affected his career. At the time of Chinatown, he had recently vacated his post as head of Paramount Pictures, and Chinatown was his first film as a hands-on producer. He's a larger-than-life figure, much like John Huston, married seven times. <laughs> he looked like a caricature of a Hollywood producer. Yeah, true. Involved with Chinatown, Marathon Man... This is stuff he produced directly. Obviously, when he was the head of Paramount, you have the first two Godfathers and a bunch of other shit, like Love Story, which is the connection to Ali McGraw. Oh, yeah. Chinatown, Marathon Man, Urban Cowboy, Popeye, The Cotton Club, The Two Jakes, Sliver. Wow. Jade, The Phantom. Oof. Started going off the rails. The Saint. Yeah. The Out of Towners remake, and then his last credited film as a hands-on producer was how to lose a guy in 10 days hmm. in 2003 i want to say i'm not really sure but yeah it was just a different time you have evans polanski nicholson coppola ali mcgraw steve mcqueen faye dunaway charles manson <laughs> <laughs> sharon tate it was just yeah. wild it was a wild time and everything was happening and just fascinating jake heads to the mulray mansion finds evelyn gone and the servants packing up the house. He also discovers that the garden pond in the back is salt water and spots a pair of eyeglasses in it. So this is a big moment of, oh shit, the mm -hmm. pond in their backyard is salt water. There's eyeglasses in the pond. We're clearly trying to set up a scenario where we think Hollis, Hollis drowned. was drowned in yep. that pond, which makes it suspicious that Evelyn is involved. But it also answers a question that I had as I'm watching the movie and really paying attention to the details in a way that I usually probably wouldn't, which is writing these notes, and thinking, well, didn't they say they're in a fucking drought? The head of the water department thinks it's fine to just waste this water on a fucking decorative <laughs> thing in his yard? Yeah. Like, yeah, I know that rich people are assholes and are hypocrites and whatever, but I thought they were trying to make him seem like this moral guy. And then you find out it's not fresh water, it's salt water. Right. And you're like, oh, well, maybe he actually is a decent guy. He wasn't wasting the fresh water. But it is weird that Jake doesn't think through the logistics of Evelyn drowning him. Because he, at first, is like, oh, she did this. I guess that maybe everyone is assuming she had help. Okay, yeah. That's the only explanation that right. makes sense. There is some weirdness he's with... just like, Hollis is such a wuss that he's just completely believable to be overpowered by this woman yeah i do think that he is supposed to be older than her although we do see him very much alive at the beginning yeah, of the film yeah. and he doesn't seem like no he like would he's just frail be, yeah like he would is near death or anything so you were alluding to the casual racism of the film when we were kind of talking about it and yeah figuring it out and this is the only time that it really factors into the plot but i have a question so the first time he goes to the house and the gardener says that the water is bad for the glass mm -hmm. and Jake repeats it. Right. Do you feel like the audience and Jake both don't understand what he's talking about at that point and we're not understanding that they're doing the thing with the accent and it making it unclear that 
pronouncing R with an L sound. I don't know. I know what you're saying. It's not supposed to click for anyone that he's actually saying grass until the second time, or are we supposed to pick up on it the first time? I think you're supposed to pick up on it the first time. See, I did not. Okay. It, it went completely over my well, head. Well, I didn't either. I didn't until this last viewing, and I was paying attention to the subtitles more than anything. Even with the subtitles, I just didn't really think about what he was saying. I, I actually was thinking, like, I wonder what glass he's talking about. <laughs> I honestly no, was like, there must be glass yeah. like in that pond or something. I don't know. It completely went by me, like thinking. No, I was in the same boat. Several times, I just took the line to be glass. Like, you're well, saying. maybe they thought that it would be obscured just enough. Yeah, where it's not going to be obvious. And if you did pick up on it, it would require you to think about it for a minute. And by the time you thought about it, the movie had moved on. So then you're jumping back to where the movie is, and so you're not connecting all these pieces. Right. That it's salt water. Because I don't think they want you to know it's salt water at the first time. Correct. So that's a reveal. When he says it's bad for the glass, if you're not picking up on the fact that they're really emphasizing that he has an accent, you might be thinking he's talking about regular water and glass and not salt water and grass. Yeah. But I don't know. Well, I guess there is glasses involved. Not that the that person would be talking about the glasses no that didn't factor into it for me because yeah, yeah he didn't know anything about them correct when Jake well i was thinking out, more as like for the viewer something that could spark something now when he points Jake. the eyeglasses out and that guy actually gets into the pond didn't you think that if he just moved to the other side of the pond he could have just reached his arm in <laughs> yeah he's very dedicated to he it just jumps doing. into the i'm i was actually a little bit surprised being someone who i don't know what these workers loyalty is to the family but I was surprised how easily he's just like, oh, yeah, here, random person, take these glasses that were part of a crime scene. <laughs> well, he might not even know that it's part of a crime scene. He might be completely well, true. well, I guess that's right. Yeah, it's not, a, it's not a known crime scene, to be fair. But he is just like, yeah, here, take these glasses. Let me get them for you. Let me get my body submerged in water to get them for he, you. He definitely could have just moved over to the yeah. other side and just reached his arm in. I don't know why he jumped in there. <laughs> Jake rushes back. To that suburban house he followed Evelyn to before and finds her in the process of packing to leave. He confronts Evelyn about Catherine, whom Evelyn now claims is her daughter. Jake slaps Evelyn repeatedly and throws her across the room until she breaks down and reveals that Catherine is both her sister and her daughter. And here we go again. I know. And you're right about this. It does come up in movies way more than you'd expect. She explains that her father raped her when she was 15 years old and she ran away to Mexico. She also adds that the eyeglasses are not Mulray's as he did not wear bifocals. Another key detail. I found these in your backyard in the pond. They belonged to your husband, didn't they? Didn't they? I don't know. Yes, probably. Yes, positively. It's where he was drowned. What? There's no time to be shocked by the truth. The coroner's report proves that he had salt water in his lungs when he was killed. Just take my word for it, all right? Now, I want to know how it happened, and I want to know why, and I want to know before Escobar gets here, because I don't want to lose my license. I don't know what you are talking about. I, this is the craziest, the most insane thing. Stop it! I'm going to make it easy for you. You were jealous. You had a fight. He fell. He hit his head. It was an accident. But his girl is a witness. So 
so you had to shut her up. You don't have the guts to harm her, but you got the money to keep her mouth shut. Yes or no? No! Who is she? And don't give me that crap about your sister because you don't have a sister. I'll tell you... I'll tell you the truth. Good. What's her name? Catherine. Catherine who? She's my daughter. I said I want the truth. She's my sister. She's my daughter. My sister, my daughter. I said I want the truth. She's my sister and my daughter. God, please go back. Oh, God, say, keep her upstairs. Go back. My father and I... understand. Or is it too tough for you? Kind of rough to watch the physicality with her, though. Yeah, well, I know that it it seems like I'm being dismissive, but the answer really is it's 1937. Yeah. It's it, a little bit it's weird. It's dark though. and it sucks, but yeah. if a woman was not cooperating the right way, I think that slapping her a bunch of times was definitely on the table oh, in 1937. Lord. Well, I know. I mean, we're going to see what, what happened to Curly's wife in a minute. Yikes, yeah. <laughs> But it's also like a little bit weirder knowing that her and Polanski were getting into all sorts of shit. And then they're like, all right, let's film a scene now where you're getting beat up. How about this? After several takes that never quite looked right, Faye Dunaway got annoyed and told Jack to actually slap her. Okay. He did and felt very guilty for it despite it being Dunaway's decision. Still dedicated to the craft then. And that shot made it into the movie. This all hits very very close to home for Nicholson himself, although he would not have known it probably in this moment when they were filming the scene. Catherine Mulray is raised believing that Evelyn is her sister, but it is later revealed that Evelyn is her mother, or rather both her mother and sister. Shortly after the film was released, Jack Nicholson discovered that the woman he was raised to believe was his sister was in fact his mother, He also learned the people he was raised to believe were his parents were actually his grandparents. This was something that happened a lot in prior generations, decades, centuries. If a girl got pregnant before society thought that it was okay, meaning before she was married or when she was young, they often would do that where the kid, they would send the girl away while she was pregnant. She would have the baby come back. The baby would then be treated as if it was her parents child that is not that unique but having it happen to perhaps the most famous actor of the 1970s while he's in a movie where that happens i know is that is weird. crazy yes and it had a huge impact i believe on the ill-fated film the fortune from 1975 which starred nicholson and warren Beatty and stalker janning and was directed by mike nichols which on paper seems like it should have been awesome and it's really not. And it was a huge, huge, huge influence on the Coen brothers, and they love it. And if you watch it... You didn't like it, right? No. Okay. If you watch it, you can see the influence on the Coen brothers, and you can see 
how they took that and made that their style. Right. But then did it way better than that movie. Uh huh. <laughs> because even at their worst, the Coen brothers are usually better than that movie, which is mostly not great. There's probably like a couple of funny lines in it. Sure, and stuff. sure. And I like Nicholson and Beatty, but it just doesn't work for some reason. I know. It should, but it just doesn't. I know. But I do think that he was distracted. I think it kind of rocked his world because the way he found out about it, too, was also kind of fucked up because they were doing a profile on him for a magazine. And it was like the researcher who did the piece on the magazine who found out, who figured it out and then like brought it to him. And he was like, what the fuck? Yeah, that's awful. (laughs) Yeah, it would rock your world. Everything you knew as your reality is now different. Chinatown has a lot going on. And on the surface, it's about this corruption and political corruption and bringing the water to Los Angeles and the death of Hollis Mulray and everything. But then this is like a little extra twist of the knife, which again is very similar to U-Turn. Because (laughs) if you left out the part where Jennifer Lopez is Nick Nolte's daughter and wife, Mm -hmm. you could still have essentially the same plot i don't know that u-turn would be as memorable without that but that's not crucial to the actual beat by beat of the plot and this really isn't either you could easily have almost every element of chinatown yeah without her being her father's lover and daughter but still have it play with it's just his granddaughter and he still has the same amount of interest Right, but they just got to have that little yeah. twist, that extra, like, ugh, where nobody can feel good about anything no. that happens. Jake arranges for the women to flee back to Mexico and instructs Evelyn to meet him at her butler's home in Chinatown. But Lou is not giving up. Jake's got to shake Lou. Lou Escobar. He takes Lou and Lou's partner to Curly's house. Remember him? Sure do. Saying it's Evelyn's maid's house and that she'll be there. Instead, he's able to use it as a diversion and escape through the back door with Curly. I think this is like indicative of not only the time period, but also sort of Polanski's mentality, just to include this moment with Curly's wife with a black eye. Which, what is the point of that, other than it's supposed to be funny? Yeah. I'm not funny, but cutesy of the audience being like, oh, okay. Like, they get right, it. Right. Like, they get it, I guess is the, my point. And you're kind of like, well, that's really fucked up. I know. <laughs> so not only are they able to escape out the back, Jake is enlisting Curly as Evelyn and Catherine's getaway driver for later that night. Although Curly does not factor into the ending, and I don't know what happened to that plan. Right? He says that to him, but then you don't see Curly again. He's mm-hmm. not there at the end, so I don't know. Well, he is around when the whole scene happens. He is? I think she originally arrives in a car with him before trying to drive off. He is there. They show him briefly. Well, he doesn't get in that final car. Correct. It's almost a weird moment at the end when everybody's like showing up and they're all just there. (laughs) Yeah. They're all convening on one spot. Jake then summons Cross to Mulray's mansion to settle their deal, claiming he's got Catherine with him. Because remember, he was hired by Cross, so he's kind of still acting like, yeah, you got to give me this 10K now. Upon arrival, Cross freely admits his intention to incorporate the Northwest Valley into the city of Los Angeles, then irrigate and develop it. To him, it almost doesn't even feel like an underhanded plan. He's just like, yeah, I'm lowering the value of their land buying it and then i'm gonna resell it for way more there's money to be made here yeah because jake is like how much money do you have and he's like oh i don't know how much do you want 
<laughs> he's like, no, 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 I don't want money. I just want to know. Do you have more than ten million? He's like, oh yeah. <laughs> he's like, well, then what do you need this for? Yeah. And he's like, I want to buy the future. Is basically what he's talking about. It, it kind of is a weird way of explaining that unchecked greed and ambition that people have, where mm-hmm. you're kind of like, why does Elon Musk need to do this, or whoever? I know. And then you're like, yeah, it's not about more money. It's just they're driven by something that you don't understand. It's this endless horrific thing it's wild (laughs) jake confirms that the bifocals he found are in fact crosses and he accuses cross of murdering mulray in response cross has mulvahill who has also arrived take the bifocals from jake at gunpoint speaking of john houston's voice i wrote that he sounds like leonard nimoy narrating in search of (laughs) there's some times where his voice is very reminiscent of nimoy's yeah i can yeah i can get that I think he can go gruffer than Nimoy. It was just a very specific Leonard Nimoy. Yeah. It was unlocking memories of watching In Search Of, which I think was on in the 70s, probably. This scene in particular has Roger Rabbit vibes off the charts, where he's just so open about this plan, and it's all coming together, and you're understanding the plan in Roger Rabbit, too, Uh about how it's something that we all know and are used to the freeway, but how the origins of it may be a mystery and murky and rooted in illegal activity. And it's kind of the same thing with, you don't know how the sausage is made. Right. (laughs) A lot of people living in Los Angeles over the next nearly century from when this movie takes place, not aware of all this stuff. And yes, I am fully aware that this shit in this movie is fake, Mm -hmm. but pretending that it's real or at the very least, transferring that mentality to what actually did happen with the, you know, Mulholland and the dam collapse and all that shit. And a lot of these California water wars are kind of still similar, even if this very specific story is not true. I'm doing it. Going to be a lot of irate citizens when they find out that they're paying for water that they're not going to get. Oh, that's all taken care of. See, Mr. Gibbs, either you bring the water to L.A., or you bring L.A. to the water. How are you going to do that? By incorporating the valley into the city. Simple as that. How much are you worth? I have no idea. How much do you want? No, I just want to know what you're worth. Over 10 million? Oh, my, yes. Why are you doing it? How much better can you eat? What can you buy that you can't already afford? The future, Mr. Gitz. The future. Now, where's the girl? I want the only daughter I've got left. As you found out, Evelyn was lost to me a long time ago. Who do you blame for that, her? I don't blame myself. See, Mr. Gitz, most people never have to face the fact that the right time and the right place, they're capable of anything. Claude, take those glasses from me, will you? Not worth it, Mr. Gates. It's really not worth it. Jake is then forced to drive Cross and Mulvahill to Chinatown, where Evelyn is waiting. The police are already there and detain Jake because they're still convinced that that's somehow their guy. I don't know why they're so obsessed with arresting Jake when there's an actual murder and they know he didn't commit the murder. Right. Maybe worry about the accessories after the fact, after you actually catch the murder. Totally. Cross immediately advances on Catherine, almost embarrassingly so, as she gets into Evelyn's car. 
just a beeline. I know. Catherine. And, she, and she's it, never oh, seen this seems guy? Like, what, and it seems like she would be and is frightened of him. He identifies himself as her grandfather and attempts to pry her away from Evelyn, who, again, she only really knows Evelyn as her mother. She doesn't really know this sordid shit going totally. on. Totally. So she's terrified by all this stuff. In the original script, no scenes in the film took place in Chinatown at all. In fact, L.A.'s original Chinatown was demolished between 1933 and 1936 to make way for Union Station. Oh, okay. The current Chinatown, located a few blocks away, opened in 1938. So the only time L.A. had no official Chinatown was 1937, the year in which this film is set. Now, for town... It was always called Chinatown, right? For Robert Town, the movie was always called Chinatown. I believe so. I think it was based off an I- the idea of how Chinatown is in the movie. Right. It was more of that symbolic thing. It was right. supposed to stand in for the futility of not understanding that you're in the middle of something bigger that mm-hmm. you don't really, you can't really Im- impact because you don't know what it is, and just sort of frustration. I think. Yeah. Yeah. Also, this last scene, the only scene in Chinatown, is the only scene that puts the three leads, Nicholson, Dunaway, and Houston, all together. And it's very brief. Desperate to escape her father, Evelyn shoots him in the arm and tries to drive away with Catherine. The police open fire, killing Evelyn. Again, just wildly shooting guns in the street. It seems almost impossible. That he makes this shot yeah. with like a revolver. The way that they show it in the movie, at least, it seems like there's no way. I know. Cross clutches the hysterical Catherine and pulls her away from the car. Also, when you see the car, I think there's like bullet holes in the glass right in front of Catherine's head. Well, maybe she was ducking yeah, down. Yeah, yeah. But her mother couldn't because she was driving right. or something. I did think it was hilarious how Cross just completely no cells getting shot in the arm. Just no reaction. I know. In fact... The first time I saw this movie, which I'm trying to think back, I'm remembering watching it in my childhood bedroom at some point, probably on DVD. I don't think I even knew that he was shot. I guess you hear the gunshot, but I don't even think it registered with me because there's so no reaction that I know. (laughs) I think the very first time I thought he was shot in the chest and was pretty immediately killed. Yeah, I don't think he's killed at all. No, he's not. Right. (laughs) I don't think we're supposed to think that he's in danger. But it's just a bizarre reaction. Yeah. Catherine. Catherine. I I'm I'm your your grandmother. Come miss. My dear. And your grandmother. Go on, go on. No, no, go on. Get away from her. Get away. Get away from her. How many years have I got? She's mine, too. She's never going to know that. Evelyn, you're a disturbed woman. You cannot hope to provide. Evelyn, put that gun away. Let the police handle this. He owns the police. Get away from her. You'll have to kill me first. Get away. Get away. Captain, close the door.
them loose. Turn them all loose. Escobar orders Jake to be released and tells him to go home. One of Jake's associates leads him away from the scene, telling him, forget it, Jake, it's Chinatown. And the delivery is great for one of the non-leads to deliver one of the iconic yeah. lines and in such a perfect way. And it's not even the associate that you see more in the right. movie. It's the other one. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Robert Town originally intended to have a happy ending. However, during pre-production, Roman Polanski and Town argued over it with Polanski insisting on a tragic ending. Polanski won the argument, and when the picture was re-released in 1999, Town admitted that he had been wrong. Polanski has said that the dark ending to the film was a result of his own despair following the murder of mm-hmm. his wife, Sharon Tate. But I think it has to be, I totally get why that's what his motivation was, but I think it has to be this force that is defeating Jake, that there's just nothing he can do about it. Yeah, I agree with that too. I think that the pool to write a happy ending is always very strong. Uh-huh. Because you do invest in these characters, and then you think about it almost naturally from the perspective of, well, how do I get them out of this? Right. And I think that's a lot of people's first instinct when they're writing any kind of story. How do I get them out of this? Mm -hmm. But, yeah, I think that his original ending, in his mind, was dark enough. Using the phrase happy ending is a little bit misleading. His idea was that Evelyn would kill her father. And that she would be arrested and end the movie in jail. Yeah. And then Polanski realized that that really wasn't good enough. And I think that when you drag out the endings like that, it ultimately turns into a mistake. I know that the the circumstances are completely different, but I think about the original idea of the ending for American Beauty with the court case and all this stupid shit. And then you think about the ending to that movie. (laughs) No one will get this reference, but you've seen it. Eureka. Mm-hmm. with Gene Hackman where he gets murdered and then there's like 25 more minutes of this movie and I know. you're like what is the point of this yeah. and I think that even if it ends abruptly and you don't actually see her in prison it's not like the end of Kanjite. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you fucking bastard <laughs> crow <laughs> no it, it, even if it's not that I think that just anything other than like that sucker punch ending is not as effective I agree so even if it isn't dragged out of her going to prison, that still feels dragged out, even if it isn't. Right. You just want that cut. Like, boom, it's over. Escobar says, let him go, because he doesn't give a shit anymore. Exactly. It's over. Whatever this was, it's done. <laughs> because it's all futile. Like, we can't control it now. According to Faye Dunaway, Evelyn's eye wound was meant to parallel the story of Oedipus who blinded himself after realizing his marriage was incestuous. Miss Dunaway had to fight to keep this in the film. When there was a problem getting the makeup and the prosthetics, the filmmakers at one point did want to change where Evelyn would be shot just to make it easier, but it wouldn't have stayed in line because she's not wrong. This is not a unique take. In a 1975 issue of Film Quarterly, Wayne D. McGinnis compared Chinatown to Oedipus Rex by Mm -hmm. Sophocles. He suggested that a wasteland motif predominates in both works, 
in which a character, Noah Cross in Chinatown and Oedipus in Oedipus Rex, uses a plague on a city to get into public power and then harbor corruption. McGinnis wrote that both works allude to a sterility of moral values in its own era, of Athens in a, quote, time of intellectual upheaval after the heroic battle of Marathon in Oedipus Rex, and of America in the Watergate era in Chinatown. He also argued that in the film, director Roman Polanski splits Sophocles' Oedipus into two morally polar figures, with the film's protagonist, Detective Jake Giddies, paralleling the good Oedipus, the one uncovering the source of corruption. McGinnis asserted that after confronting the web of evil perpetrated by Cross, Giddies is the Oedipus whose success, to use the words of Kenneth Brooks and Robert B. Heilman, has tended to blind him to possibilities which pure reason fails to see. McGinnis concluded that there is finally pity for the doomed ignorant Giddies, just as there's pity for the blind Oedipus and Sophocles. However, Giddies' real sight like Oedipus comes too late. I know this is Matt's favorite part of the show where we get a little more analytical, but... <laughs> I did think that was kind of a fascinating connection with the whole blindness thing. Yeah. And they really stuck with the whole thing with her flaw in her eyes so that you could all see it coming. And it's. I can say I remember studying Oedipus in middle school. Wouldn't have made the connection. <laughs> <laughs> the film frequently shows us images of two things that are identical except that one is flawed. Two pocket watches side by side, one broken. A pair of eyeglasses, one lens cracked. Giddis' nostrils, one slice. Giddis smashed one taillight on Evelyn's car. He lost one shoe in the reservoir. Evelyn has a flaw in one of her irises. Catherine looks like a duplicate of Evelyn, but is the product of incest. The list goes on. But according to Robert Town, it was unintentional. He and Roman Polanski never discussed using such images as a recurring theme. Whatever meaning may be ascribed to the symbolism, the filmmakers did so unintentionally. And I included that because you might be thinking, well, why would you include that then if it all meant nothing? Because these things come out on the heels of talking about the analytical Oedipus of it all. Uh I wanted to reiterate that sometimes people can just sort of latch on to things. Yeah, yeah. But you could argue that there's a subconscious level to the creation of art and that even if we don't fully understand why we do the things we do, that it comes out in the end. And that sometimes you just sort of naturally go into these themes or recurring things right. or whatever. So there's a little bit of both. It's a little bit bullshit. It's a little bit real. <laughs> I don't know. A sequel film, The Two Jakes, was released in 1990, again starring Nicholson, who also directed, with Robert Town returning to write the screenplay. It was not met with the same financial or critical success as the first film, So Matt is going to tell us about The Two Jakes, which again came out in 1990. It was a huge bomb. The film had a $25 million budget. It only made $10 million. It also stars Meg Tilly, Harvey Keitel, Madeline Stowe. And then a a few people return, Yeah, including Escobar. Right. Perry Lopez. I think even Dunaway does some narration in it. Some voiceover. Yeah. A little bit of voiceover. All right. So I've seen it once. Uh I thought it was boring. It was probably a year or two ago. But Matt rewatched it, so he's going to tell us a little bit about the two Jakes. Yeah. Start with it's not really like Chinatown except in story and character alone. It doesn't feel like the same thing. A comparable came to mind 
that I think only you would get. <laughs> think Texasville, the last picture show. Yeah. In terms of how Texasville just seems like this completely like goofy and silly movie in the yeah. same universe. The tone the is like characters. really different. That's sort of like the jump in tone for these two. Yeah. It's much lighter. It's much goofier. But it feels like they did it way too late. Yeah. Like Nicholson should not be that old doing this character. It's interesting, though, because the time difference between Chinatown and the two Jakes is only 16 years. Which I know, be... but I think it should have been like 1980. Well, right. I agree. Yeah. But that would really only be like, what, 2007? Yeah. From now, which they but do kind of shit like that all the time. About people just looking older back then? Well, right. He had already been around a while. Nicholson was not a guy who hit it big when he was 22. Right. He was more like 34 when yeah. he starts being a huge deal. So, yeah, by the time you get to 1990, he probably was a little too old. But I've seen yeah. The Two Jakes, and I know he directed it. I don't think it was his age that was the problem. I just think it's not that good. Yeah. The big difference think... is I actually like Texasville. Yeah. I still think there's <laughs> some fun to be had with The Two Jakes, but it's way too long. But there are some fun scenes in it. Right, but... yeah. Because people often talk about making sequels to classic movies and how a lot of times it ends up not really working out. But when you go back, a lot of them are loved in their own weird way. Yeah. Including one that Meg Tilly was in. True. Psycho 2. Psycho 2. <laughs> Even French Connection 2 it has like a cult following. A lot of yeah. these movies have followings. You never hear anyone really talk about the two Jakes. It kind of just like a forgettable. I don't know. I was reading thing. a little bit that people were excited when it was available for streaming because it had kind of been buried. Yeah, it's probably one of those movies that yeah. was hard to find for a while. But I don't know. No, I know. It's nothing great. But I still was able to have a little bit of fun with it. But it's just completely different from Chinatown. With Chinatown, it's one of those things where Robert Town has a, a great idea. But it ends up being all these. It's Nicholson's performance. It's Polanski bringing this like darkness and weirdness to it. Yeah. It's all this crazy shit happening on set that all culminates in this magical thing that you just can't recreate. Like Jaws two. I like Jaws two more than the two Jigs. <laughs> if we're being real. Okay. <laughs> At least Jaws two has a big shark in it. Definitely. <laughs> you know what would have made the two Jigs cooler if it had a giant shark in it. <laughs> The failure of the two Jakes led to the third film, Giddis versus Giddis, never seeing the light of day. However, Roger Rabbit, I think, does more than a decent job of just sort of putting its own spin on the yeah. same idea, which is like, how the do we tell the history sequel? of California yeah. in a weird way? A prequel television series by David Fincher and Town for Netflix about Giddis starting his agency was reported to be in the works in November 2019. At this point, that's almost four years ago. Who knows if that's going to happen? I love David Fincher. I think it's cool that Robert Town would be involved. I don't know if that really is worth the squeeze. Do yeah. we need to have all these stupid prequels and sequels to things? Like, I just was giving you the whole like the whole thing about that Grease prequel that got canceled. I'll say like, does, this, so, like, does it matter? If we're stuck living in that world, that's one that interests me more. It's sure. more niche, you know? Well, a big part of that is David Fincher's yeah. name. If that was a different director, It'd it would be like, kind no of be chance like, oh, in God. Hell. Yeah. But even that, you're kind of like, well, why can't David Fincher just come up with a new thing? Yeah. Really? Do we need... I, okay, this is maybe too big of an idea to jump into right now, but the cool thing about telling stories is that... It's fun to imagine that these people are normal 
up until something extraordinary happens to them, and that's what makes it worth telling a story about. In other words, if every second of Jake Giddy's life is extraordinary, then yeah. what is the point of Chinatown? I know. Chinatown is supposed to be the most extraordinary thing that's happened to him up until that point. Right. So automatically a prequel is going to be less interesting because how could it be more interesting than the thing you already told us a story about? I know this is going to be controversial to some people because it is a well-respected show, but that's kind of the way I feel about Better Call Saul. Like Saul Goodman. Yeah, I never this, had any interest in it. Saul Goodman is this perfect character within Breaking Bad, and that's like this critical, crazy moment in his life. Yeah. And everything before that was small change. Right. So I know. Like, I never really bought into the whole concept, honestly. Exact same here. But people do really like that show. No, I know. Yeah. And I did watch some of the first season and I thought it was good, but yeah. it just wasn't anything I was interested in. A film about the making of Chinatown based on the nonfiction book, The Big Goodbye, Chinatown in the Last Years of Hollywood, was reported in August of 2020 to be in the works with Ben Affleck as director and writer. Again, I don't know if that's still going to happen or not. I kind of doubt it just because they just did it with the offer and Godfather and Robert Evans being a part of that. So I think they'll probably wait before they actually make that into a movie. I kind of feel the same way that I did about Air, though. Mm Mm-hmm. Which is kind of like, what's the point of this? I know you liked it more than me, but yeah. at least with Chinatown, it's like the making of art is the thing. Whereas in Air, it's really just like a celebration of capitalism and <laughs> brands. I can't really get excited about either of those things. And you would think they'd both be interesting to me because Fincher is interesting and yeah, everything else. But neither of those projects really excites me. Why can't you just leave things? I know. Meanwhile, if this was Wild Things, I'd be like, they need to remake it every 10 years. (laughs) (laughs) So let's jump into segments. First up, recommendation. What are you doing? What? What? Vincent stopped making picks. Well, how am I going to know what movies to see? We have a wide variety of Gene picks. Gene's trash. I'm Gene. It's been a minute since we saw it in the theater, but we haven't talked about it on the show yet. So let's talk about the new Jennifer Lawrence comedy in theaters now, although it's probably ending its run soon or it'll probably be available to rent soon. No Hard Feelings. Yeah, I think we were ready for the hard R to come back. And who better to bring it back than Jennifer Lawrence? If this movie came out 15 years ago, it would be like a C-. minus. You would be like... Correct. This yeah. is a lower tier, for sure, for raunchy sure. comedy. There's a few laughs in it. It's not edited particularly great, and then the end, it just sort of peters out, and you don't really care. And in fact, you had to leave early for true. A I phone missed the call, end, yeah. and I was actually thinking, like, if Matt asked me what happens at the end of this movie, would I be able to tell him? And it, I'm not a hundred percent sure I even remember. Well, how we weren't the there for ended. the plot. <laughs> we were there for the plot. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, well, there is the full frontal nudity scene, which was unbelievable that it actually happens in a movie. And I was just blown away by it. Like, hats off to Jennifer Lawrence for doing it. Unbelievable, really, in this day and age. But even beyond the shocking nature of that, like, if you took that scene out of the movie, how much would this movie really register? Not much. There's some funny stuff in it, for sure. Oh, yeah. But... I felt like the laughs were a little bit more spaced out than like the top tier raunchy For comedies sure. of back in the day. 
Like we just did super bad on the show but we've a few had, months ago. This is nowhere in that league. And Not I mean, even we've close. had such a break though from getting this type of movie that the laughs were yeah. refreshing. Yeah, I'm contextualizing it too okay, much, please. maybe. Too well, much. Well, I, I was mean. gonna say. I mean, this almost is sounding too negative because I agree with you. I mean, right. it, It's a mid mid range movie in terms of quality. But as I sat next to you, there were some decent laughs coming from you. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I'm saying that's what I mean. I was contextualizing it a bit too much by saying that if this came out 15 years ago, it would be not considered as great. But I was ramping up to say that this day and age, it's probably one of the funnier movies of the last 10 years, which isn't saying a lot. No, it's hard for me to even remember us going to see comedies in the theater now. Well, at this point, Movies like Bridesmaids are over 10 years yeah, old yeah. now. The Hangover. Really, yeah, the the first two Hangovers for sure. I think the third one's probably about 10 years, and that definitely wouldn't be one of the funniest movies. Right. And you're really getting into the, like, this is the end territory and Neighbors. And even those yeah. are like eight, nine years. Right. I think this is the end is pretty good. Neighbors is a little lesser, but you're starting to trail out even. Totally. And you're so you're at the very end of that run, and that's ten years ago now. So this does stand out. I think it did a little bit better than they were expecting. Maybe that will push people in that direction. You need to have a star like Jennifer Lawrence who wants it to happen. She seems to be a fan of comedy. She did an episode of The Rewatchables with Bill Simmons where they talked about Dumb and Dumber. So. She seems to like comedy and wanted this to be a thing. Other people will have to jump on that bandwagon, too. It seems like the people we used to count on for comedy have all either been canceled or have moved on to other parts of their career because they didn't see a future in this anymore. Mm-hmm. Like Danny McBride writing horror movies, like shitty right. ones, like the Halloween ones. <laughs> I liked it overall. And then I'll just add on to that. I joined Matt in seeing asteroid city not with him but he had already seen it and talked about it so i Mm -hmm. saw it and i liked it i guess the only caveat i would put on it is when we did darjeeling limited last fall we ranked the wes anderson movies and so the question becomes well where would you put asteroid city and i really don't think i would put it ahead of anything other than the french dispatch Mm -hmm. and then the two stop motion animation pictures which i'm not a big fan of that style right a lot of people love Fantastic Mr. Fox, so if you're one of those people, then you might not even put Asteroids in yeah. with that either. But overall, though, it was way better than the French yeah, Dispatch, yeah. and at least was enjoyable. For sure. Which his last two movies, Isle of Dogs and this and French Dispatch, were not, really. I, I agree. And I felt like it was a little bit of a return to quality, even though it doesn't top any of the movies that we love. I really do think that Wes has sort of become the new Woody Allen, thankfully not as weird and creepy, and he's not married to a stepdaughter or anything like that, but he has enough fans where he'll be able to do his movie every year. Every now and then, you're going to get a Grand Budapest, which makes more money and probably gets nominated for Best Picture, but that's not going to happen every year. Mm -hmm. And that's just it. That's where he's at. He'll have enough fans to do his thing. But he's not going to be a major player with every movie, but actors will want to work with him because he's an auteur that has his style. And like I said, every few years, probably one out of every five or six, they'll probably be like Oscar talk and stuff like that. That's my prediction. It would be interesting to see if he would ever take a turn back towards less twee, but it just doesn't seem like that's on the table now. It just seems like he's so doubled down on this style. 
Yeah, although I found it less annoying in this movie than with some of the other ones. Yeah. Even though this has a layer of up its own assness yeah, <laughs> that sure. I yeah. couldn't really believe at first, but I got used to it. <laughs> All right. All right. All right, you go ahead. You go ahead. You keep it secret. But you remember this. When you control the mail, you control information. That'll do it for recommendations. Let's move into mailbag. We have an email to read. And this one is from Shelly, following up from her listener request for Bug. I just listened to my movie request, Bug, and you guys did not let me down. It was great. I've seen the movie several times and have never been able to figure out what the hell is going on in the story. Now I know it isn't just me. You validated all my thoughts, or all the thoughts I had about the movie, and maybe that's the point. We're supposed to never really know what's going on. Thank you so much for doing this for me. I always listen, even if it's a movie I'm not crazy about. I love your knowledge and insight and your humor. Keep up the great work you do. Shelly. Oh, thanks, Shelly. When I was reading that, I was like, would I actually read an email from a listener who was flipping out if they didn't like our listener request episode? I think that would be fun in its own way. You say that now, and then if it happens, you know that I'll just be like, we're not doing the show anymore. (laughs) (laughs) No explanation. No further explanation. (laughs) The show's over. (laughs) She's never seen a single Paul Walker movie? That's a huge oh-no-no. She also doesn't care about Blu-ray. She's a monster. Last but not least, a quick physical media spotlight for you. Since we did this on the show last year, and it was a movie previously unavailable on physical media, or at least in high def, there was a DVD, of course. After Hours, 4K, brand new to 4K, brand new to Blu-ray, as part of the Criterion Collection. I just picked up the new 4K, approved by Martin Scorsese himself. I'm excited to check it out. It's a movie that we did on the show I probably only watched it for the first time within the last five to ten years. Yeah, probably yeah. less than ten, way less than ten years. Probably yeah. five to seven years. Mm-hmm. And I've really started to love it. At first, it was confusing to me because it was so different from Scorsese's other movies. I know, and just seems like tonally very different too. Because yeah, okay, maybe not every movie has De Niro or DiCaprio, but there seems to be like a certain tone. Because even in, like, say, a very un-Scorsese-like movie like Bringing Out the Dead with Nicolas Cage, there's still a tone to it. Right. Which is harder to see in this movie. I think the more times you watch it, you start to notice the Scorsese things a little bit more. I think so. Yeah, it's really cool. It's underseen. Yeah, the cover art is really cool, too. Yeah, and thinking about it recently with how a lot of U-turn works and some of these other things as well, kind of that frustrating feeling and then as you get older you realize that you're not going to have as many wild nights as the nights of, that the lead character has like that kind of crazy anything can happen you're young yeah that's even true. on a work night you're just kind of out all night and then all of a sudden you're just it ends with him back at the office just as if it didn't happen at all and yeah i don't know it's really cool and that's kind of the fun of collecting things you know i was a big vinyl guy right before blu-rays before movies and you still have a vinyl collection as well but whether it's vinyl or whether it's blu-ray or whatever it is when there's like a holy grail type thing that hasn't come out yet and everyone's sort of waiting on it there's tons of them and then they come out and the weird thing is people just move on and then it's on to the next whatever the next thing is 
We've been waiting for After Hours to come out on Blu-ray or 4K for a decade, and then it comes out, and you're kind of like, all right, well, now what? I know. What's the next thing? I didn't even pre-order it, but I definitely plan on getting it. All right. Do you have anything for this? No. All right. Let's wrap it up. The schedule upcoming is still kind of up in the air. We don't know. I think we're probably going to work our way back into the way it was before, where you're going to start getting episodes fast and furious sometimes less than a week in between sometimes two in a week whatever it is so just hang on to your butts make sure you're subscribed to the podcast on apple podcasts or podbean or wherever you're finding us so that you never miss an episode we're gonna have give us a seconds making a big return now for the second half of the year we've only done one so far so we got that we have listener requests for july and august and then into september so tons of stuff happening Stay tuned for that. Email greatestpod at gmail.com. Greatestpod at gmail.com. And at greatestpod on Twitter. Make sure you're following along. Reach out to us in any of those ways. We'd love to hear from you. Honestly, that's what's keeping us going. Absolutely. In it, life, not Our just listeners the show. have been great this year. We yeah, yeah. got so many listener requests, we can't even believe it. Never would have expected it. We have ordered new microphones. You probably can tell that we're not using them because we sound exactly the same. But hopefully in the near future, there'll be at least some slight improvement to the audio quality. And we thank you for your support. And we thank you for the money that we've received from everyone, including at least one listener who just gave us a donation out of the kindness of their heart and not even a listener request. Wow. How about that? I like how you're acting like you don't know. They sent the money to you. (laughs) (laughs) appreciate it anyway letterboxd zach1983 matt crosby let us know if you'd like a free sticker let us know if you have a listener request be engaged it's a community of ass clowns we want to hear from you forget it it's chinatown (laughs) (laughs) we should have our own version of that for this podcast except it's like something stupid that we always talk about forget it it's incest (laughs) (laughs) oh it's like oh god Again. Yeah. All right. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back soon with another big one. There's times when I want something more, someone more like me. There's times when this dress rehearsal seems incomplete. But you see the colors in me like no one else. And behind your dark glasses, you're you're something else You're really loving Underneath it all You want to love me Underneath it all 
Chinatown! Homer! 